0: Medical school? Mm-hmm. What brings you to Alaska? It's one of these trade-off programs. And they pay for my education and I work it off here.
1: Yeah, I've heard of those.
0: I guess I'm one of the lucky ones, though. I've heard of guys getting stuck here three and four years.
2: Lee, have you ever actually seen Doogie Hauser? I haven't seen Doogie Hauser. I'm aware it's uh, Neil Patrick Harris. That's his name, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, he's like a boy doctor, Wonderkind. So, how old is Doogie Hauser? Like, is he actually a, a little boy that's a doctor?
0: I think he's like he's 13 or 14, I want to say. Wow. Good on him. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like insane. I mean, like, how would you even go <laughs> yeah. to medical school at like 10 years old? How, does that how even serious
2: work? is this show? Is it kind of a comedy or is it like. ER or something with the
0: little kid. <laughs> it's more of like a comedy thing. From what yeah. I've always seen, I've seen clips. I've always seen clips of it. Okay. And I think it's really funny how irrelevant it is in like the popular sphere. Like even I was watching like um, like television shows in like 2010s that mm-hmm. would still reference Doogie Hauser. And I'm wondering if we're getting to the point in which like Zoomers don't know what Doogie Hauser is because we barely know mm. what Doogie Hauser
2: is. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. No, I feel like it's it has some lasting impact. I guess at least with our generation, Charles. And we haven't even seen it. We just know of it.
0: Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah. On that on a similar theme, have you been to a doctor's office yet where the
2: doctor's younger than you? Uh yeah, I think so. I think I have because the I sort of go to like a, a university hospital. So a lot of times the doctors that I see are, you know, young or like students or things like that.
0: Hmm, okay. That's never happened to me. <laughs> I've never walked into a doctor's office. Someone's younger than me. It's I mean it's bound to happen. I mean, through to like right. just through to, you know, the passage of time. As long
2: as you're still alive, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah. What are we what are we talking about here, Lee? Yeah. We're not here to talk about Doogie Howser. Unfortunately, no. Well, fortunately, we are here to talk about Northern Exposure, one of my favorite shows. And Charles, uh, I, I think I can say it's one of your favorite shows too, but uh, I am a longtime fan of Northern Exposure and Charles, you're watching it for the first time with every episode. We've made it to season six, the final season. So we've seen a lot here. And I guess I should mention for the uninitiated, Northern Exposure was a TV series that ran on CBS in the 90s for six seasons. We're on the the sixth season now. Uh, It's kind of uh, fallen out of the limelight, I guess you could say. It was never made available for streaming, still hasn't ever been available for streaming. You can only really watch this if you have the DVDs, or now luckily they've made Blu-rays in some regions uh, we're lucky enough to watch. Uh, Blu-rays look great, by the way. I love going back to the older episodes, uh, Charles, when we were watching just on DVD and seeing that Blu-ray quality is insane. Uh, But yeah, talking about Northern Exposure, an episode today called The Letter. Yeah, we have a couple different letters in in this episode. We have a couple different, I guess, similarities between many plot lines. I I almost counted maybe four, That there's kind of some smaller, some bigger, some smaller.
0: Uh, Hang on. Okay. Before I get into it, who who, who are the director's? (laughs) And the writers okay. of this
2: episode. All right, yeah, let's just dive in, and then we'll we'll start we'll start uh, going down all the all the plot in this episode. But it's called once again the letter. The director was Jim Charleston, who has directed for Northern Exposure before. He did Mud and Blood in season four. He did Jaws of Life and Baby Blues in season five, and then just a couple episodes ago here in season six, he directed Eye of the Beholder. That's the Ronaldo Pine Tree episode. Um, I mean. Plenty of stuff happens in that episode. But uh, I believe he continues to direct in this season. And I think he's even still directing TV today or like uh, quite recently. The writer is Meredith Stein. I think that's how you say her name. She hasn't written for Northern Exposure before. I think this is her only credit here. But uh, she's important to note because she is currently the president of the Writers Guild of America. She uh, kind of cut her teeth on shows like uh, Northern Exposure, Beverly Hills 90210, NYPD Blue, uh, which she earned an Emmy nom for, for writing. That's pretty interesting. Hmm. Wait, Uh, for this episode? uh, No, for NYPD Blue. Oh, okay. Uh, She worked on that for four seasons, it says. Uh, I think she worked on Homeland. Uh, Obviously, she's had a lot of uh, television under her belt. And she's the president today of the Writers Guild of America. The air date for this episode was October 10th, 1994. And yeah, I mean, before, before I uh, ran off these credits, I was trying to see if you could count how many plot, plot lines are in this episode.
0: There is three plot lines, is there not? There is the one in which you have Maggie. That's probably the most titular one Mm -hmm. involving her in the past self. Mm -hmm. Then you have Joel and his scalp. Mm -hmm. Then you have, yeah, let me do it one more time. (laughs) Then you have Shelby with the letter. There must be four. So that must be four. I'm sorry. Because then the fourth one has to be Chris and Angelo, the uh, the barber.
2: The barber. Yeah. That's what I got with four. I mean, some of them are kind of like Joel's is maybe you could argue kind of small and Mm Shelly's is kind of small. I mean, we're intercutting all throughout. So they're constantly weaved throughout the episode. But I think the weight here is definitely, as you said, on on Maggie's story.
0: Yeah. Or at the very least, is the one that's most interesting to me uh, Maggie's Mm -hmm. story. I don't think that. I'm gonna be writing screenplays anytime soon, <laughs> so I don't think like the president should be listening to this. I'm gonna like deny my membership role if I apply. <laughs> That's right here, diss.
2: the president of the WGA.
0: Yeah, she's gonna like Home see podcast. this and like absolutely blacklist me. I don't think it, it's definitely the writing for this episode that I had a problem with. I was, I had a Sorry. big problem with this because. It was, in my opinion, I'm speaking for myself mm-hmm. um, right here, and I don't want to be too negative because I understand, like, you know, that's it's not very fun to have to listen to someone continuously well on something. So we understand, like, the main focal point of this episode is about the time that's lost and that uh, mm-hmm. your future is wide open and there's really nothing that anchors you down. So there's a lot of availability and path for you to see. But the way that they executed it was so hammered in and so without subtext Mm. that I was very – I honestly thought there was a twist coming at the very, like, last two minutes. I was like, there's no way you're going to hammer this so hard into my brain. It's, like,
2: too obvious or something. Is that what you're saying?
0: It is. Yeah, it is obscene. (laughs) It's because they had so many lines Mm -hmm. in there that kept referencing it. Everything –
2: yeah, as you're looking that up, I, I yeah, I do I do recall like everything seems to be like swirling around this central idea so I could see that in being like maybe it's all kind of pointing it's all kind of pointing directly at something.
0: Right, which I like I mean obviously if you've listened to us through all six seasons, you understand that we always try to find the common thread that's weaving throughout all the plot lines and try to connect them together. Mm-hmm. And Northern Exposure usually does a fantastic job being very subtle with it Mm -hmm. on -hmm. this one. Like I have dead quotes from here where it says like they stole my future. Nothing worse than they can do with that. I guess when life really isn't in your hands, there's nothing you can do or you got your whole life ahead of you. There's just a lot of statements that are being pulled into there, but even more than just that. So even if you were arguing on a lack of grace, I also found the character of Angelo Maxbury? I believe that's his last name. Angelo, I wrote it down. Maxwell.
2: Maxwell. Mm -hmm.
0: Maxwell, I'm sorry. Angelo Maxwell's character, I don't know if he's a recurring character. I don't don't know what's going on here. (laughs) But I really did not, I don't really understand what's going on here.
2: So he was, to me, very intriguing because of the way he acts. uh, And almost seems like, and maybe this is also, I didn't even think about this by the end. It's probably what is irking you, is that he treats people He acts differently in different scenes. It's like, who is this guy? Why is he this way? I I get that he's surly. I get that he's prickly. I'm fine with that.
0: (laughs) They want us, the, the audience, to view him that way. I'm not looking down on him whatsoever on that. I'm trying to see what his purpose is in this entire episode mm, yeah, yeah. because I'm um, I'll skip forward a little bit. His entire thing seems to be saying that like he has to go into a witness protection program because a lot of murders take place in barber shops. Mm-hmm. So he views Chris as a threat to his existence or somebody that's robbed him of a life. And he, he really just hammers into him, but you would never characterize Chris as someone that's like violent someone that's like oh i i can't really trust myself around chris i feel like he's gonna rob me he's gonna commit some sort of uh he's gonna commit some sort of crime around me uh that's not really well i mean that's this, not really any this guy's uh, not sorry.
2: from sicily so he doesn't know any better no that, but I wouldn't, chris, I wouldn't guess chris to do that on first glance
0: but. yeah but chris doesn't fight back against him on this
2: he acquiesces
0: toward him at the end right. he goes into the barbershop and he's like, ah, I guess you had something to say. you were right about the long-haired thing. I guess I, I didn't realize I was a terrible human being. Why don't we just go toward your way of thinking? And Does it's like, he, wait what no I
2: don't hold up. I don't think he like is saying, you're right, I was a terrible human being. Couldn't part of that just be like Chris uh, recognizing Angelo and seeing him on his level and being like, okay, like I understand you've been through some stuff. I can see it from your point of view now. What doesn't make sense to me? Like what didn't make sense to me and maybe still what doesn't, like maybe even Chris disagrees with them, but he's like, I see your point of view. Cut my hair. I don't know. That's like his acquiesce. Acqui- yeah, but like he's not. <laughs> Sorry, I
0: can't get this <laughs> he, word. He's not in the wrong here in any way though. Like that's what I like. Yeah. I would like understand if, if there Chris? was some sort of, if there was some sort of way in which Chris is doing something to slide him. But mm. Chris is mm-hmm. quoting poetry. He's talking to him. He's not even like, going against his ideology, Mm -hmm. like, because he's talking about like, oh yeah, I can totally get what you mean on like the counterculture movement and how that's affecting the barbershops. He's understanding him. Uh, But then uh, the character of Angelo, it's
2: just such pushback. Yeah. I thought that was going to be, yeah, that actually was a little interesting to me because I thought it was going to mean something that you know, Angelo is—I uh, think, as you said—such a surly character. Like, why is he like this? But honestly, like the reveal of the whole mobster thing, assassination, um, whatever that guy's name, Anastasia. Uh, uh yeah, Albert like, Anastasia. That was whatever. That's fine. Uh, that wasn't that. I don't know. It just didn't interest me too much. It's, it's quirky. It's weird. But maybe it's just not. I, I never. I didn't think about that by the end of the episode. But I do recognize it's like. It's kind of like, I was at first intrigued by this Angelo character. Like, why does he act like this to Chris? But I don't know if it ever paid off for me.
0: Yeah, and the way that he obtains this information just seems very underhanded. I still don't understand if he was trying to be Truly friendly toward Ed, or if he was just working him because he knew that Ed and Chris were friends, so like he mm, knew that once he put Ed into the that's chair. That's good po-
2: Hey, we, yeah, let's let's just talk about this plot line in order because we're kind of talking out of sequence yeah, in it. Yeah, we can um, talk about yeah, it. Yeah, because but uh, but yeah, that is a, that is interesting. I didn't even think about that. So let's talk about Angela. We got a new barber in Sicily. Chris gives him like such an amazing. Introduction on air. I would play it, but there's music in the background. Uh, but he says things like, uh, "Oh, he re- he references a flobe. I didn't know that. That's what that thing was called. Do you know what a flobe is? No. It's like this contraption that involves a um, like one of those like uh, trimmers, you know, like razors, but it also involves like a vacuum tube, so that as mm. you cut the hair, it it vacuums the hair off. So it's like cleans it as it cuts. It's for like home barbers, you know, but it's always (laughs) like, I don't know if it produces great haircuts, you know, but he says, you can put your phlobia away. Turns out that the crap, I can't remember the name of the last barber they had, but there was a barber in Sicily that we've seen. Uh, Apparently he's left like a year or maybe two years ago. Like they've been without a barber for some time. And this guy, Angelo Maxwell is coming in. Chris just like, Talks uh, the world of him, how he's like a genius. And um, yeah, it, he, he gives him sort of this, uh, th- this wonderful introduction in this opening sort of Chris monologue early in the episode.
0: Right. And then we get to see the first customer, which is Joel Fleischman. Mm-hmm. And Told does something that I think is completely reasonable. He tells him and says, Hey, I just want you to do like an inch off my side, air on like the side of caution. Um, I'm not looking for like a complete hairdo. And Angelo took offense to that, which <laughs> in my opinion, if that is the case... I don't know how long, how have you lasted so long in the service industry?
2: I just don't understand this. (laughs) Also, yeah, I mean, like Joel makes, I don't know if he says this exactly, but I feel like he says something pretty much like this where he's like, you know, like I happen to be very uh, concerned about like how my hair looks. Like I think most customers would be concerned with their hair Mm -hmm. looking good and they have their own way of what they want their appearance to be. So it's not out of question for the customer to make a request of the barber,
0: <laughs> right? And I would understand if Joel was saying this in a very nasty manner. Yeah, but like I rewatched the scene like three times in a row. <laughs> and I was like, was he in any? Was there like irritation in this voice? I was like, no.
2: So I was like, yeah. I, I was well, very confused at that. What's interesting is, yeah, you know, Joel is maybe sort of polite in the beginning, and then uh, you know, within this scene. Angelo is feeling around on Joel's head and he feels this uh, bump. And he says, oh, it feels like a, a meningeal cyst. And then Joel is like, "What you're a barber. What are you talking about? What do you know? I thought it was interesting because at this point, Joel starts becoming more snappy with Angelo, whether it's because this barber is trying to give him medical advice. I mean, giving a doctor medical advice or if Joel is just like really concerned for his health now. And so he is a little on edge, but it's also, uh, we can see talking about this meningeal cyst. And I think Angelo relates a story of in Baton Rouge one time, he said he caught a cerebral aneurysm in a customer. Um, so like he knows people's heads is, I think that's what Marilyn says later. You can see that Angelo is starting to get a little more, starting to open up a little more when talking about medicine with Joel. But at this point, I think Angelo already made a bad introduction. Joel is now, uh, you know, being, giving, giving Angelo the rebuff, you know, like not, not trying to make any more conversation. I love that Joel says, uh, I tell you what. You don't play doctor and I won't do any Marcel's within a hundred yards of your storefront. All right.
0: Do <laughs> you know anything about Marcell's? Not really. I didn't quite get that one. Um I got it like I'm assuming that's something to do with Barber,
2: right? Yeah, I think so. I'm pretty sure there's there could be two meanings, but um, so the first thing I found when I Googled it is there is a um sort of this doo op band back in the day called the Marcells. And so I was thinking like maybe like he, I'm not gonna like seeing like a barbershop quartet or something, um, outside of your thing. But the, but the, the name the Marcells comes from a hairstyle called It's mm-hmm. like the Marcel wave. It's like this wavy hairstyle from like the twenties. So that is probably what Joel's referencing here. Like, I won't give people the Marcel wave outside of your storefront, uh, I guess. Okay. I
0: <laughs> Well, we next see Angelo approaching Chris. Chris is outside K-Bear. Mm-hmm. And Angelo wants him to read his own ad that he wrote. And I don't think we ever get to hear the ad that he wrote right there. Mm-hmm. But Chris does tell him and say, like, hey, I gave a very glowing recommendation for your shop. And Angela was like, no, I don't, nah, nah, that's not good.
2: He said the it thing was is, incoherent babble. He was like, no, that was not good. I did not like your introduction. <laughs>
0: I I would understand if, like, the situation was turned and, like, Chris moved into Angelo's place. Let's say, like, Angelo lives in Town X. Mm -hmm. And Chris moves into the new radio station and does an introduction like that because he doesn't know how Town X operates. But Mm Cicely, obviously, has been listening to Chris talk about this for, like, years. So they're used to his manner of speaking. So in that context... I think Angelo is wrong because yeah. like
2: no, Chris is doing pretty much Chris things. You could not ask for a better introduction. I wish we could have read, as you're saying, I wish we could have heard the introduction that Angelo prepared. The only defense, and I'm only thinking of it right now, the only defense that I could give Angelo is if he didn't want to draw attention to himself, if he's like trying to hide from oh. anyone because he attacks Chris later. I guess we'll get to that scene in a bit, but he attacks Chris later because he's like, you know, I had to deal with criminals like you in the past and people coming for me. But then I think in that same scene, he also says, like, well, I'm not afraid of them anymore. They already took away my future, so I've got nothing left to be afraid of. So I'm already countering my own point in that, like, Angelo shouldn't (laughs) care if if people know where he is, you know?
0: Yeah, Angelo has a curious um, vocabulary to him in that he – usually references wars or battles or invasions. Hmm. He's a very defensive person. So he talks about the British invasion, uh, mm-hmm. not the one from 1776, <laughs> but the one that was from the 1960s of the Beatles and Rolling Stones, all of that, where they re- introduced their counterculture tendencies into America. He also likes to reference like the Battle of Charlemagne. And he has all of these things in his lexicon uh, where – He's kind of bemoaning the entire culture where we are now because he feels that, I mean, it's a tired man yells at cloud, but like people aren't taking personal responsibility. There's too way too much handouts They're like, blah, 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 blah,
2: yeah. I like his. i I am interested in his angle when he's, like, basically, and Chris kind of repeats it back to him, Chris says, I never thought of the destruction of the barber profession as a byproduct of counterculture. You know, like the Beatles and all these. As you're saying, the British invasion bands they have the crazy hairdos and stuff. Um, That's a fun way to look at it, why this guy might be grumpy. Uh, Though I'm also very glad that Chris, throughout the rest of this episode, is trying to argue that, because I I don't believe that (laughs) opinion necessarily, but (laughs) I, I do like, I would be interested to hear him go on and on about it, you know?
0: Yeah, well, he also says that, like, it's you know, Chris says, like, yeah you know, I never really thought about that. That could have like an impact on your business, but (laughs) then he goes and says like, it's a more ontological thing. He says, it's not just hair length. It's the wholesale breakdown of values. Mm -hmm. He tries to make a connection between having long hair and not having personal responsibility because you're just letting it, you know, flow everywhere.
2: Mm -hmm. And, I don't know. I just feel like that's not a really good outlook. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't I don't really agree with him either. I like that Chris is uh, constantly challenging him throughout this episode. But yeah, it's like, I don't, to me, I think my reaction to this character was not so much like, oh, I hate this guy, but more like, this is interesting. Why is there a person who doesn't like Chris and like trying to figure out like, are they going to be friends at some point? But no, I you know I can't I can't uh, disagree with you. This is kind of a when you kind of boil it down, just looking at it, this character kind of is annoying. And knowing how the episode ends and like what all happens, looking back, it's like yeah, like why did why did he have to be this way, you know, or why did it have to go this way? I do want to shout out, sorry, because I haven't done it yet, but the actor who plays Angelo Maxwell is the great Bill Cobbs. I'm sure you probably recognize this guy, but he has like tons of credits in film and TV. Um, So it's fun to see him on Northern Exposure. While the role of town barber seems like it would be a recurring role. I don't think that Bill Cobb is a recurring cast member. I think that would have like, I think I would have remembered that Mm. in season six. So this is probably the only episode he's in.
0: Oh, wow. That's even more crazy. That is like absolutely outlandish. Great actor. maybe, maybe
2: he'll he'll look, I don't know. We'll see, but I'm pretty, yeah.
0: I don't want to take anything away from his performance. Great. Yeah. Like I said, great actor right here. Um, and we can get more into it once we get to the end of the episode, mm -hmm. but yeah, uh the next time we see him is in the brick where Chris wants to have another friendly conversation about what they just talked about, about the trashing of Western civilization. And he just gets up and leaves because it's just not something that he wants to be involved with, mm-hmm. which is Chris.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Angelo just pays the money on the like tosses some cash on the table and gets up and walks out. Uh, I don't think he says anything to Chris at all. I think he just stands up. I, he, maybe he's not even done eating. He's just like get, wants to get out of there. Uh, that's a pretty short scene because, uh, as you said, that's pretty much all that happens. And then the next time we see Angelo, I believe, is the scene that you were talking about. Well, I didn't even think about this, but Ed is coming to see Angelo. Ruthann had sent Ed because Angelo used an expired coupon at the store. And he owes 56 cents, which I guess we talked about this in a past episode, how like the inflation from 1994 to today is like 101%. So today that's like a dollar, you know, (laughs) but still it's like a little, a small amount of money.
0: Yeah. I think that this, okay. So just this scene itself in a vacuum is really good because it explains a lot about his character Mm -hmm. because Ed is here asking him, about this expired coupon that it's probably not on him on Angelo because he just moved into town. He probably is not aware of uh, the expiration dates or anything like that, but he still willingly pays the money and he does so without complaint. And that's the cool part that shows a lot about him. And he says, I don't want to owe anybody any money. Um, What's fair is fair and I will pay you for that. And then not only that, he realizes the value of Ed's hair. He says like, Oh, like I'm not wholesale against just long hair Uh, only on people that it's not appropriate on, but on you, Mm -hmm. it totally works. Let me, you know, on the house, I approve of your behavior and I want to cultivate it. Mm -hmm. I think like, yeah, it's like really great. That shows more about his character, shows that he's all about personal responsibility and having a code of ethics about him. Mm -hmm. But then he starts plying Ed, trying to get more information about Chris. And that's like a really nefarious Mm -hmm. thing. And it's like, if you're an individual that wants to uphold like the the order of law, don't you think that's a little underhanded to be doing?
2: Yeah, I didn't even think about this scene being, I didn't even catch it that Angelo is maybe stealing or trying to draw information out of Ed about um about Chris, but it is interesting to think that I think this is the only friendly interaction we see of Angelo and another character. And like the only other person who speaks kindly of Angelo, if you could even say that, is Marilyn. Like I think she says to Joel, he knows heads or something like that. So she doesn't necessarily speak bad about Angelo. Um, But yeah, this is like the only time where it seems like a positive interaction, apart from whatever... Resolutions we see between Chris and Angelo later. I like your what you're pointing out, and like maybe is this a this is all a front to try to get more information?
0: Yeah, and I we're led to believe that it is kind of like that because of the next scene that happens, which is where Chris shows up to Angelo's place, still trying to make amends. (laughs) He's got baked goods on hand. He wants to start the friendship with his barber at a great place, and yet. He gets severely injured by a shotgun and then threatened with a firearm right there. And Angela, like,
2: hits him with the butt of the, or, like, he, like, smashes Chris's foot or ankle with the butt of the rifle. Yeah, he never even apologizes.
0: He gives him, like, some, like, lotion or something to, like, help Uh, the wound. Witch
2: hazel, yeah. Yes. Which I don't know. I guess that works. Like, I don't know. I don't
0: know. I feel like the sorry would have gone, like, a pretty long distance. Like, that's free. Um... No, I, and this is where he reveals his uh, his motivations, uh, what the character's about, and this is where the wheels come off the wagon for me. So he tells Chris that in his profession, in the barbershop profession, there's lots of people that get murdered, and he happened to witness one with Albert Anastasia, mm-hmm. which is a true story. That, mm-hmm. that actually did happen right there. I, the reason I even know about Albert Anastasia, I don't know if this is the same case for you, but there's a... A small little exchange in the West Wing in the Christmas Mm. episode in season four where Toby's father works for Murder Incorporated, which is for Albert Anastasia. And they even ask him the question. They say, hey, when was Albert Anastasia killed? And they're like, "Uh, October of 1957. (laughs) And that's what they talk about in this episode. It said, Mm -hmm. October 25th, 1957. But anyway, I'm digressing. (laughs) The main point of this one is that he's telling Chris that he's been running his whole life from criminals, and criminals robbed him of his future. Mm -hmm. Even though it is not his fault that he had to witness that crime, he still had to be secluded from his original life and just plopped into a new place without any input by himself. And I get that. I get how that can breed resentment in you against criminals, but Chris is neither that nor anywhere close to anything resembling this. And that's where this loses me.
2: Yeah, I actually can't remember. What does Ed say about Chris? I mean, he does say he used to, he did time for like armed robbery, but I mean, Ed would have had to have said, like, Chris has repented, right? Or like Chris is like a different person now, right? Or mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm just trying to s- s- see like why would Angelo think Chris is going to like pull some crime on him or something, you know? I don't know. Um, yeah. I don't know. I I I do like this, uh, this quote though. I know you were kind of rat- rattling off uh, some of these very sort of to the point quotes at the beginning of the episode, but when uh, Angelo says, they stole my future- There's nothing that they can do to me worse than that. And I like that uh, because of where it falls in the episode. I think it's kind of around the same time where Joel is uh, concerned about not having any, like, you know, he's going to die from this uh, malignant whatever that is on top of his head. Uh, So I think it's interesting. And and we talk about um, in some other plot lines, like not necessarily losing your future, but Whenever you are transported to your future, it's not as good as you had dreamed, or things like that. Uh, so I think it's a nice way to tie it in. But I also acknowledge uh, kind of what the uh, the argument is. The problem of this episode is that every all of these four plot lines, while they do sort of work together, uh, they kind of are a, a little too explicit about it. Perhaps like they're too exact or uh, direct about it.
0: Well, I'm mostly harshing on this specific plot line because I think on the other three plot lines, you have Shelly with the letter, you have Joel with the bum of the head, and you have Maggie. All of them have a very clear classic character study of want versus need, where you can understand this physical want that they have, but what they need is like this spiritual thing that's within them. And it's fixed in this episode. Uh pretty well, and I would actually argue, really well done on those other three plot lines. But on this particular plot line, there is, I I cannot identify that for neither Chris nor on Angelo. And Angelo does not come in and like these two characters manage to come to the middle ground and see the differences within each other. I mean, it, it does it at the end, but there's no real resolution to it because there wasn't even a problem in the first place, in my opinion. I don't believe that Chris had any... I, I don't believe that Chris had any true want or need in his character throughout this entire thing. All he wants to do is have a good impression with mm-hmm. Angelo. Yeah. And then suddenly he gets told his backstory and he's like, all right, well, I guess I'll just take that to mean that, like, I can't have long hair anymore in order to earn this guy's
2: respect. I don't think that's what's happening. I I do think the plot the plot here is as simple as Chris saying – like, I, I want this guy to like me because like, I think he's cool. And uh, he, for whatever reason, thinks I'm a drag and he hates me. Uh, so just trying to win this guy's affection. And by the end, I don't think uh, it's Chris saying like, I need to cut off my hair for him to like me. I don't know. I think it's just him kind of showing some respect and appreciation for the work that Angelo does. I guess it's a funny way of um it's a funny way of resolving it. I agree with you there. I don't really like it as a great resolution. It's also like I think I know why they did that is because it's kind of an obvious way. It's like, oh, he's a barber. Maybe we can make the resolution of the plot line. He's like cutting their hair that's like intimate and that's also like him giving up something for the other. It's a little too obvious perhaps um. But yeah, I don't think Chris, I, I don't like the way Chris is treated, but I also don't think Chris is like submitting to Angelo, you know, by the end. I don't know.
0: Okay. I I think that's a reasonable take of what you're saying here. Let me, Yeah. I don't want to like, I'm going to spend like one more minute on yeah. this. We yeah. don't
2: have to like spend
0: too much time on this. <laughs> no, no, no. no I, really, really. I really, I can hear myself. I can feel <laughs> like I'm being like really negative right now. I'm just saying that like, so if we break this down to the prior example that I used and we say that like Chris has a want, but then he has a need that takes over at the end or mm-hmm. should in proper mm-hmm. writing. His want at the beginning is to be on a good relationship with Angelo. And he's, in my opinion, I think he's done everything right. It's not like he oversold him mm-hmm. to some weird degree because that's just how they do stuff in Sicily. It's not like he didn't try to see with him eye to eye. He goes to the brick with them and tries to talk. And say, like, hey, maybe I came off wrong. Like, you know, let's yeah. talk about these things. Uh, and then the third one is when he goes in with baked goods and he tries to like <laughs> really come into there. You can make an argument, and be like, Yeah, well, like if Angelo's character said that he didn't want any of that, then Chris is like overstepping his boundaries. I would totally buy that if that happened,
2: but it didn't. And it like In fact, Angelo asked more about Chris. I mean, Chris didn't know that, but Angelo seemingly wanted to know more about Chris. So, so why is he shy, um, shooing away Chris, you know?
0: Right. If the structure of the episode was written where, like, Chris is overstepping his boundaries, Chris is downplaying the barber profession, Chris is doing something mm-hmm. that is, like, wrong, then the need can be of him finally accepting Angelo and sitting into the chair and they can see eye to eye. I just don't see that happening in here. Mm-hmm. That's why I think it's such a failure. The only reason, in my opinion, that I think Angelo is existing right now in this plot line is that he makes for a very good mouthpiece to be able to say, look what happens when your future is robbed from yeah. you compared to the other three who have their futures available toward them.
2: No, I agree with you there. I think that's one thing, like, as I was saying, I like the beginning of this plot line. It's like, why is this guy so mean to Chris? And then by the end of it, I think the only thing I could really check off is that, you know, oh, it ties into the whole theme of like, you know, losing your future or like things like that. Um, So it feels like I agree with you kind of like it's there just to kind of play into a theme. Doesn't feel as organic and doesn't seem to make a whole lot of like that scene with Ed, like that even went over my head. Like, is it supposed to be that he likes Ed or are we supposed to take from it that he's trying to pull information out of him, as you're saying, it's like, yeah, that's kind of messed up. And it's not necessarily clear, or at least it wasn't clear for me when I was watching it. You know, it, it went over my head. But I guess the uh, the simple thing we can say is not, we don't mess with Chris. You know, we love Chris. Like, don't, I know they're going to try. Because anytime when Chris is like acting out of character or, you know, we're <laughs> like dragging him through the mud here, I I don't know. Maybe I can't speak for all viewers, but yeah, we, we, we hate to see it. Don't like to see that. Um, We talked about the last scene, right? I mean, basically it's, uh, it's him getting his haircut from Angelo and, um, you know, I wrote down, Chris finally got that haircut that he had last episode. Did you notice that last episode he has short hair? Yeah, and in like, has- yeah
0: they flipped it right there. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and we
0: end with a radio address of Chris addressing the town, still in the same style. It's not like he changed his advertising style. He says, like, fresh from the chair of maestro Angelo Maxwell. <laughs> and then he starts going into Spanish. Like, he's still,
2: like, the same Angelo's Angelo is so pissed off right now. He, like, turns <laughs> off the radio, throws it in the trash can, you know? I like, uh, he has a quote here. He says, I'm going to paraphrase the words of Joe Campbell. Nothing is exciting if you know what the outcome's going to be. I looked it up. That's not a paraphrase. That's an exact direct quote, at least Mm -hmm. from what I found. Uh, The full little uh, segment here is, it's from the hero's journey on living in the world. The heroic life is living the individual adventure. There is no security in following the call to adventure. Nothing is exciting if you know what the outcome is going to be. To refuse the call means stagnation.
0: That's Joseph Campbell, right? That's right.
2: Yeah, that's the one with the, the hero's circle. Mm-hmm. The hero's journey, the like uh, the man with the thousand faces. Is that what it's called? He has another book or something. Does he really? I for, So for those of you who aren't familiar, and I, I'm quoting straight
0: from my head at this mm-hmm. point, but in traditional stories that are very... I'm just going to use the word basic, and I don't mean that as a pejorative. Simple. There's, yeah. Okay. There's usually, like, you have the the slope where you have a beginning, and then you have rising action, and then you have a climax, and then you have a denouement, and then you have an ending. So it follows that classic little peak right there. But the hero's journey is a circle. Mm -hmm. And so, like, you usually have somebody that starts at one place, and they go out, they explore the world. They learn more about themselves. You have the want versus need that I talked about, and then the circle comes back round, where they come back into their same place, mm-hmm. but they're a changed person, and that makes for what lots of other writers like to say a more dynamic experience. It's something that's not so easily solvable. It's something that's more interesting. It's the um, it's like what you would call the rama, the oh yeah, the becoming an artist. Becoming an individual.
2: I didn't know that's where that came. That uh, Bill Dung's Ramon or whatever. It comes from that, or yeah, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. We're
0: gonna get it. We're gonna get it. like I, I, I'm, I, I, I'm like I said. I'm quoting this off <laughs> yeah. my head. We're gonna get an email <laughs> telling me I'm
2: wrong. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, that's a he's an iconic, iconic fellow Joseph Campbell. There. Um, all right, let us rewind to the beginning. We've covered one of the four plot lines. We've got. Shelly and her chain letter, uh Maggie, of course, with her titular letter, Joel and the um the meningeal cyst. Maybe we talk about that. That's kind of a short one. Do you want to talk d- about that one? Uh, I mean, unless uh you want to nah, let's talk about okay, it that cool. one. It's a we, we've kind of already started it, so it's a pretty short one. Um and it starts with Joel sitting in Angela's barber chair, finding that uh bump on his head. The next scene that happens after that with Joel, oh, you know what? I forgot to uh, mention this, but in that scene with Angelo, that first scene with Joel and Angelo, Angelo calls Joel out for not washing his hair. <laughs> it's like <laughs> such a dig. And Joel's like, I mean, I washed it yesterday, but.
0: <laughs> do you do you wash your, like do you shampoo your hair before going to the barber yourself?
2: Um, yeah, I think so. Um, I don't, so I don't wash my hair every single day. Um, I find that my hair, if I do that, it becomes like very, I don't know how you describe it. Kind of thin feeling like it doesn't have, obviously it's not oily, but I'm not saying I want my hair to be oily, but it just doesn't have any volume, I guess. It gets really thin. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I, I will, yeah. I will wash it like every couple of days or something. I mean, I, I wash it. I just don't like use shampoo every day. What is your, what is your regimen? What's your hair regimen? Uh,
0: Shampoo I don't think every you're supposed to. No, I don't think you're supposed to. Right. I'm pretty sure, like, it's written on the bottle. and like <laughs> danger. pretty sure it's written on the bottle. And, like, yeah. you don't shampoo every day. Like, it does something
2: to your hair, and it's not great. Right. That's probably true. Because you've got natural oils, right, on your scalp.
0: Yeah. So I think that, like, removes it. To mm-hmm. some degree, you can tell how ignorant I am when I'm like with my tone going in this way. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's he gets a little dig against Joel right there. Mm-hmm. And that carries forward into the next scene with him, this irritation. Because he's got a little mirror, he's got Marilyn trying to help mm-hmm. him out, and he's trying to see for sure if he's got this cyst with him. Mm-hmm. And Marilyn is, I wanna say she's being helpful. I don't think she's trying to be difficult or anything yeah. like that. I think she's genuinely looking at this and being like, "No, it's not like this one shape. It's like this oval octagon shape. It's it's like it doesn't look like anything on the page." She's not trying to be enigmatic, she's not trying to be coy.
2: She like she's really looking at it and being like, "Hey, I really can't place this." Yeah, Joel Joel is abrasive. He's uh he's a little tense as well, like he's not in a good headspace. Yeah, I totally put any of the uh the the tenseness of the scene the the anxiousness of the scene it's all on Joel. Marilyn's just here trying to help uh really giving her giving uh Joel the honest truth. Uh, I think she was like a little nervous to touch the bump on his head. Like he asks her like just feel it, you know. This is where Marilyn says of Angelo that he knows heads and Joel calls him a a blabbermouth barber or something like that. I guess talking about like how you're always talking to your barber. That's like a common thing. And, and Joel's worried that this barber, Angelo, is going to tell everybody that there's a bump on his head or something like that. Anyway, Joel is like, okay, crap. I'm going to have to go see a specialist in Anchorage. If this was on anyone else's head, I could know in like 10 seconds what was going on. Um, but actually, yeah. I mean, I wonder. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not a doctor. I was just like, does Joel need to... I mean, it turns out obviously in this episode that they do need to give it, uh, what is it called? Like they have to do a lab on it or something like a biopsy or whatever mm-hmm. it's called. So it, it's not something that Joel could have just like looked at in 10 seconds, even if he could see it, but whatever. Uh, let's move on to that scene. Cause I think that is the next scene or is there one, uh, there's one no, where Joel's like one. out of the office, like Walt comes in at some point, but with Joel, he goes to, I believe Anchorage and this is the uh, soundbot that we played at the beginning. It's a very young doctor. I believe his name is Rudy Rojas because Joel in the scene calls him Doctor Rojas, and then Rudy. Yeah,
0: I I just realized what they were trying to do, or what the um, the the screenwriter for this episode. They're trying to show an alternate future with Joel. So you have this doctor that goes is in the same exact situation as Joel. Yeah, they get transferred to Alaska. <laughs> they got to work off the. The loan that the state paid for them, and then they get to go back to this, uh, to the East Coast and live a cushy life. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, it's the same as Joel right there. What this episode fails to do is really elaborate on that or at least hammer that home a little bit better mm-hmm. because I think he gets lost amongst the little thing on his head, what he fears to be something that is very malignant. Mm-hmm. I think this could have ended up a lot more elegant if they went down that path. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't really go anywhere, unless I'm wrong.
2: No, yeah. Do, I do think, you have something to say on this? No, yeah. I think uh, when Rudy is talking about he's doing this uh, sort of trade-off program where the state pays for his education and he does some work here, I think that's just initially anyone watching the show, any fan, is like, oh, that's funny. <laughs> it's like Joel. But... Uh, on top of that or underneath that humor, as you're saying, is an interesting sort of connection that we can make about Joel. It's like, this is uh, like a version of what could have been like this. And like, he's going to have, Rudy's going to have this cushy future in New York, which is something that Joel, you know, when it's, when the show started, he was maybe not unlike Dr. Rudy Rojas and That's what he saw in his future. And that's about to all be turned upside down um, in this scene. So, yeah, I mean, I do think it has some strong thematic subtext, but I would agree it's not too obvious. But, I mean, we were also, we were just complaining that all of the other thematic elements are too obvious. Uh, So I appreciate when something is a little more uh, under the radar, But I also see what you're saying. Like Joel is a major character in the show. Why not focus on this a little bit more? I always think about that in some of these plots, even in the ones that I do like in Northern Exposure is like when they sort of start to scratch the surface on an idea and it's like, oh, wow, that's cool. And I wonder if they could like have made a whole episode just about that. Sometimes the fact that they don't go deeper into it Makes it more exciting in your head to think about, but in a case like this, it's like, yeah, I wonder, like that. This could be an entire episode, you know?
0: Yeah, I think that's these are two separate things, in my opinion. I, I know we, I, I know that I harped on the other one being very obvious, oh, yeah. <laughs> but this one isn't even like within the same ballpark. And the reason why is because they don't really touch on this for the rest of Joel's scene. Mm-hmm. So if we like, if I go forward like super quickly right here. He gets out, he gets a motorcycle, he gets put over speeding, then he goes and like crashes the motorcycle <laughs> on some moose poop. <laughs> then he goes and shows up the Chris's place, returns the motorcycle, talks to Maggie, says he's never felt more alive, and that's what reinvigorates him. So he never references this. Yeah. So I feel like this could have been a very interesting turning point if he could have been like, so he gets that flashback scene really quickly with the fisheye <laughs> lens, and he sees his life play out.
2: Yeah, I think it's like a, actually, I think it's like a digital warp distortion. I don't think that's an actual, like they might oh, have, sh- really? they may have shot it with a wide angle fisheye, but I think they're even doing more, maybe it's not digital, but it's like a, a visual effect that they do, like a process. I don't think it's all in camera because the way they warp it looks like really funky. Oh. Um, but yeah, anyway, I think that's so right.
0: <laughs> Right after that,
2: they could have talked
0: about like how his path diverged. Yeah. And could have been like on this person's life. Yeah. I think that would have been very interesting.
2: Yeah. To me, it just felt like the whole Rudy Rojas thing was like, oh, that's funny, cause like Joel got the short end of the stick, cause Rudy's only here for like three years and Joel's here for six or something like that. They don't really go back to it and be like, oh wow, like this is something we could have explored of Like, okay,
0: so, like, it's got some elements that are tying to the rest of the theme. So, like, Maggie's is all about, like, oh, we're, like, you're losing life. Mm -hmm. You know, we're skipping 15 years ahead. Now you're 30, time's running out. Yet on this doctor, he's even younger than Joel. By, like, seven years, he's accelerating life even quicker than Joel. Mm -hmm. But they don't, I really don't think they tie into it super well. Like, they have the idea, Uh, but... It's not being threaded in an elegant manner right here because, I mean, like I just talked about, like, let's let's go through it. Let's talk about Joel's next scene, which is him just blowing off his patience because Walt's coming in for his 215, mm-hmm. and Joel's not here. Joel even blew off his 130, and we cut to Joel just on a
2: motorcycle, just speeding. <laughs> yep, he's speeding down on a motorcycle. Where did he get that? Well, the the state trooper comes to pull him over And he explains to the trooper that he's borrowing the the motorcycle from his friend, Chris Stevens. You can, like, call to check if you need to know. Like, here's the registration license. The um, police officer writes him a ticket. And Joel says, you know, frankly, says to the the officer that he's not going to show up. But he's trying to explain, Look, I'm only saying that because I know you have to. Don't you guys have to, like, go to the court? Uh, on your day off, like I don't want you to show up for no reason. He doesn't go as far to say like I'm not going to show up because I'm going to be dead. Uh, but I think that's what he was trying to like. He's like I don't think he's trying to like stick it to the man and be like I'm not going to show up. I think he's gonna. I think he's just basically trying to say like I'm I'm probably going to be dead by that time or something.
0: Right. And he has one vital sentence where he says, "Hey, how old are you?" And the cop says, "I'm 27." And Joel replies back saying, "Gosh, you have your whole life ahead of you." Yeah, and they're they're focusing on this particular aspect of time <laughs> when they could be focusing. I mean, I know I'm being really greedy, I'm being really uh, arrogant by saying like, "Oh, you should be doing this." Obviously, there's no one right answer. Mm-hmm. But I just think, why introduce that doctrine in the first place and talk about the Doogie Howser-ness of it all? Why is he being depicted in this manner?
2: As you're saying, like it's all right there that. We could have a similar scene as what's happening with Joel and the state trooper and Joel with uh the I mean, it's kind of like that it occurs after in sequence. You know, we see how surprised Joel is that uh the doctor is what, what did he say? Like also pretty young or whatever. And uh then it then again now we see with this police officer later that he's also young. And Joel is thinking about youth, but I wanted to point touch on something you just said, which I I think is interesting. Is like they're focusing now on the future for Joel, just the end of life. Um, when it is also interesting to think about, like what what could have been in Joel's past as well, or in his youth. Like where did his youth go? I guess that's kind of that's all pushed onto Maggie. So maybe they kind of wanted to focus that energy on like yeah. Maggie talking to her childhood. But it's also about, I don't know, it, she kind of spans both, you know, obviously, because mm-hmm. she thinks about her future.
0: Right. They try to carry it forward on the next scene with Joel, which is him arriving at Chris's place, mm-hmm. and he's returning the motorcycle. He's saying, like, I was taking risks, which I usually never do. I was, fl- you know, I, I hit asphalt. <laughs> I'm injured. It, felt, it made me feel so alive. Mm-hmm. And, like... I don't know. It's, it's, easy. Like, is that, it's is that, easy. Does that feel like a very satisfying resolution to you? It's like the resolution is that Joel doesn't wear a helmet when he gets <laughs> on the motorcycle. Like, that, that's oh, what no. we want. Well, oh,
2: I don't know if it's there, because I think the next scene with Marilyn is a, is a bit more of like a... Like he's returning back to the beginning. If we're going to use that hero circle, the mm-hmm. hero's journey, he returns back to the beginning and he's learned something. Uh, I like his, I like his re- um, recognition at the end there. But I do want to talk about this scene for a bit. I agree. It is a bit simple. It's like, oh yeah, of course, like Joel's going to have some sort of like awakening, um, when, when faced with uh, a certain death or whatever, he's going to see, um, see life at the fullest or something like that. Um, but I, I, I did want to point out, cause you mentioned it earlier, Joel, the reason why he crashes the bike or whatever is he like, uh, you know, like kind of crashed over a pile of moose droppings, he says, um, which that's not the, First time that moose droppings are right. invoked in this episode. The first time, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's like Shelly and she's talking about sort of like uh Ouija boards and like like the like sort of the spiritual mumbo jumbo. She calls it moose caca. I wonder if that like has some significance why, or is it just supposed to be funny that Joel crashed on a pile of moose droppings because this is Northern Exposure, and there's a moose in the uh, opening credits. I don't know. Can you draw any <laughs> sort of That's almost what like,
0: it feels like. <laughs>
2: yeah. I don't know. I was trying to- I, If it comes to me, I'll, I'll punch it in. But uh, yeah, it, it makes me want to believe, because they talk about moose poop twice in this episode, that this callback is referencing something like- um, like fear of spirituality or something like being afraid of these like ghosts, the heebie-jeebies or whatever that Shelly has. Uh, I just thought we should bring that up, but I I think Mm. it's the the case is still open there. Um, Maggie, this is more of maybe for Maggie, but in that scene when she sees Joel returning the motorcycle, I wrote down that it's like, okay, Maggie sees something in Joel – I, we should talk about this when we get to her plotline, but I kind of maybe had a misread, or maybe not. I guess we'll get to Maggie in just a bit. But there is that scene with Marilyn after this, right?
0: Yeah, this is the ending scene for Joel, which you're going to have to elaborate for
2: me because yeah. I don't think I quite got what happens at the end. Well, I've got a soundbite, so I'll play that, and then we can talk through it. We're just doing huh? You ever notice how, how the light is this time of year? It's almost like clear, like
0: like cut crystal. Even sounds are sharper. They're they're, they're crisper.
1: It's like the whole world's in bold relief. Like, like we're all just here for a moment, but boy, what a beautiful moment it is. What's this? From Dr. Rojas.
0: Dr. Rojas? Extradural meningioma, unusual but benign, result of excretion of meninges from skull, nothing to worry
1: about.
2: Yes! Yes! Why did you tell me he called? It's in your box. Marilyn, a message of this magnitude. What you, you don't just put it in the inbox. Don't you realize that I've been taking S-curves. Do do you know this at 70 miles an hour without my helmet? I mean, I could have been creamed. I could have (laughs) been.
1: I could have been roadkill on the Alcan, Marilyn.
2: And then they have like the, it's a very classic, like this could have been a moment from season one where Joel and Marilyn are staring at each other in silence. Just he understands like why, why she's doing this or whatever. But uh, but I like that because it's just kind of funny. It's so funny that Joel is like, you know, we're only here for a brief moment, but gosh, how beautiful that one moment is he's like, oh, what is this? Like, immediately he finds the uh, thing and he's like switching. He's like, yes, oh my God, I'm going to live. And he's like, wait, you, you didn't tell me this? Like, I, I risked my life. So he's gone through this whole cycle of finding that life is very dear. And then he realizes that he's been uh, an idiot for like thinking like he could throw his life around. And, you know, he's like, I could have been roadkill. And then also it's not... That he returns to exactly the same that he was at the beginning. You know, he also recognizes that it was silly for him to live freely and carelessly. But also now he knows that, you know, maybe he hopefully has a deeper appreciation for the life that he has. Uh, before, it was like, you know, he thought he only had like a moment left to live. And now it's uh, even perhaps more valuable when he says, I could have been roadkill on the side of the Arcan or whatever that uh, road is called or whatever.
0: Yeah, I, I do. I get what's happening here, but I, I just don't feel like it's very well earned. There's just so many plot lines for them to weave throughout this episode. So when we get to this one where Joel realizes that he's going to live... I didn't even really feel that much, I mean, other than the motorcycle scene, that one motorcycle scene where he was throwing his, you know, he's putting his life in his hands. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm not going to wear a helmet. I'm just going to go speed. It it doesn't have a lot to rest. It doesn't have a lot to bolster on it. And then the next time we see him is with Maggie where he has the, he has the Mm self-actualization. So... I, I guess, like, I, I don't know. I just didn't feel that moment really hit me very hard because I, I wasn't even very hit very hard when Joel even got the diagnosis.
2: I guess also, I mean, maybe you probably guessed this too, but maybe not. Uh, I mean, I've seen it before, so I know that Joel's not going to die. But it's possible, because I've been hinting to you that Joel leaves this season, that maybe this is like, what if this was the episode <laughs> Joel, like, dies and doesn't come back? <laughs> the rest of, like That's how he's I, sent off.
0: I thought they were going to... Um, Dude, like, a little setup right here mm-hmm. with Joel's? Yeah. Thinking about his life in Sicily, and he sees, like, oh, well, like, this doctor's going back to the East Coast. You know, maybe I should start thinking about that. But
2: now it really just kind of just gets tossed at to a wayside. I see what you're saying. Like, this could, if if we know that Rob Morrow is leaving this season, uh, maybe, the, maybe, they, maybe the showrunners and writers didn't know that at the time of this episode, but maybe they did. Maybe at some point they knew this. They, you know, this could be a plot line that spans the next episode or like a couple episodes after this. You know what I'm saying? Like Mm -hmm. could be something where Joel doesn't end up getting that note back from Dr. Rojas, or at least not yet. And he's doing this introspective kick for a few episodes. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I I do like uh (laughs) I like Rob Morrow. Uh, I like Rob Morrow a lot in this season. I like uh, his his sort of reaction to this doctor's note in the office here where he's just screaming, Yes. (laughs) And something we didn't talk about at all this season, I don't think, is his haircut. His hairstyle in this season is different than I think any other season. It's a lot longer, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's starting to get a little bit longer right there. Don't know if that's the trend. Don't know if that's just you know, getting really lazy.
2: <laughs> like, but yeah, I mean, it's
0: not a bad look on him.
2: Yeah, I wonder if it was for because I know I think it was last season when he was in the uh, he was in Quiz Show or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like he's in a couple movies. Uh, he starts he starts acting in movies around this time. Yeah, is that the last the last thing with Joel?
0: Yeah, let, that's the last one with Joel. Let's rewind it to the third. Uh, plot line with Shelly. Okay. So this one begins, there is, this one's pretty quick. There isn't a whole lot to talk about. Mm-hmm. So this one has Shelly with Maggie and they're in Ruthann's store and they're picking up their mail and Ruthann gets a chain letter. It's like Shelley, those. Shelly gets it. Um, but yeah. Shelly gets, yeah, Shelly gets a chain letter and it's one of those like old fashioned things where like the modern equivalent would be like a Nigerian prince or something. Kind of. I was going to say like <laughs> You know those things on like those pop up ads where they're like, (laughs) want you to like spread the thing out really quickly to five other people?
2: Or it's like, you've scrolled, you've reached like the cat of wealth. Share this cat with other people, or oh, yeah, it's like a meme (laughs) or something. You're scrolling, yeah, so something like that. It's but the version of this where you would copy this letter and mail it to five other people that you know. Uh, again, this is moose caca. You know, it's that kind of stuff that uh, Shelly always thought was silly in high school. And throughout the course of this episode, she begins to question that. I do like this moment in Ruthann's store because Shelly's reading her chain letter and Maggie's reading her letter. And they're both, they both have very specific reactions like Maggie is getting transported, kind of having this awestruck uh, moment, sort of like an awakening, and Shelley is like, "Oh, another one of these silly chain letters." And she, I like that she says uh, she reads from her letter. Ignore this letter at your own peril. And she kind of laughs and like balls it up and throws it away. But I, for whatever reason, when she said that, I also attributed that message to Maggie. Like Maggie cannot ignore her letter that she has. But yeah, I don't know that uh, maybe that is. Intentional, but it could also just be Shelley's uh, whole the scene with Shelley is kind, of, or this scene for Shelley is separate from Maggie. You could split them apart, even though they're happening side by side.
0: Right, and we get two scenes. I'll just combine them together because they're okay. Uh, so short together, right? So you have Shelly talking with Hauling, and she's saying that they need to go on a vacation because. Well, they've been spending a little bit too much time with their own daughter. They've been cooped up. So they try to take a vacation to Fairbanks, and they try to get a reservation in the hotel, but it's all booked up. Mm-hmm. And this is where like the first signs start to come in for Shelley. But it hasn't really synced in yet, because then we get to the next scene where Holling is preparing, I want to say it's like oxtail soup, mm-hmm. yeah. something like that. And he burns his hand preparing it it's and shatters some dishes. <laughs> he, it's like a whole barrage of events happens. And then Shelly apologizes and says that it's her fault. So now she's realizing that her ignoring the letter is bringing this catastrophe into their lives. It's affecting their future.
2: Yeah, I like that moment because Shelly is apologizing profusely. She's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. And, and uh, Holling says, you? You didn't do anything. And that's actually where the scene ends, I'm pretty sure. I don't think she says anything in response. So we see that she feels very guilty about it, but why should she feel guilty? Well, I think by the next scene, she puts it together with the whole, she ignored the chain letter and bad luck struck her here. And um, I just want to talk about the, uh, you were talking about how they wanted to take this vacation. I like something that Shelley says in that previous scene. She says, I don't care how good of a parent you are, if you don't get a break once in a while, you can go majorly filbert. And I never knew this, but filbert is another word for a hazelnut. Hmm. So, so I'm guessing she's saying like you can go majorly nutty. You can go crazy. But I just think that's hilarious. Filbert. That's a funny, <laughs> a really funny way to say hazelnut.
0: Hmm. Yeah.
2: Anyway. Yeah. So, uh, so bad luck is striking. What does Shelly do next?
0: Uh, she tries to revert course. She's going to go find that letter that she threw out. So she has to go through the town garbage pit, which I didn't know they were operating in this way.
2: Presumably, there's just like a giant pit of garbage. You know, I feel like we've seen not this exact pit of garbage, but there have been episodes in previous seasons, more than one, where they talk about going to the dump and watching the bears Mm -hmm. So there's, and there's been scenes where people are like sitting in the cars, but we never see what they're looking at. I don't think, we might get a, we may get like an exterior shot or something, but, but yeah. So I I didn't imagine this is what the Sicily dump, like some, for some reason in my head, I imagine it looking like a swamp or something, like where you're parked over like a a cliff looking down on a dump or something Mm. where you're safe, you're far away from the bears, but I mean, that doesn't make sense. This this makes a lot more sense, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a classic trash heap right here. <laughs> and Ed happens to be there. And so you get a little... Yeah. I, I always like it whenever we see Ed and Shelly together. Like I talked about before, the I want to say it's the beginning of season five, uh, episode one. That's right. Where they had a pairing together. It's really nice to see these youths You know, try to handle whatever life can throw at them, which at this point is trying to find this
2: old letter right there. I like that Shelly. You know, when she sees it, she's like, "Oh, I'm good. I'm just looking for like some tax stuff that I threw away." And then, like two seconds later, I like how I love how she comes clean pretty quick. She's like, "You know what? I lied. It's not tax. It's this really silly thing, but it's this chain letter." And she goes on to explain how, like, I used to think these things are so silly, but I don't know, like weird things have been happening and i think if i can you know send this chain letter off it'll make it all better
0: yeah she's really beholden by these superstitions that happen like you like you talked about like the ouija board is something that gave her to uh heebie-jeebies and now this letter is kind of dictating the course of her life right there it's kind of neat Mm-hmm. Yeah, like in this plot line, because what happens after this scene is that she tells Hauling, she says like, hey, like, you know, I dug out the letter and I finally sent out my five people. It wasn't easy, but I, I narrowed it down. So he sent it out to them and Hauling's like, great, I'm going back to sleep. Yeah, <laughs> the shortest scene. He's
2: just like, <laughs> oh? and then goes back to bed. But she's excited. <laughs> yeah, she, she feels um, saved. You know, like she feels like she's like triumphed. You know, now when it turns out, I guess we 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 won't get there. It's a little bit later, but it turns out like the letters actually don't even get sent. But uh, if we just want to go chronologically through the scenes, uh, the next thing that happens is Shelly starts to recognize that good luck is happening. For instance, there's this uh, restaurant guide. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's like go Mio or something. She has to ask Maurice about it because it's uh, some sort of maybe European or French, uh, very... I'm guessing prestigious restaurant guide. And they called because they want to put the brick in this restaurant guide. It's a, some some sort of Alaskan feature. So the brick is going to be in this prestigious restaurant guide, which is great for their business. What else is some good luck? I mean, she starts listing things off later, but um, what happens after that?
0: Well, basically she says like, well, we should still try to like trying to go see if that hotel reservation is up. But before that happens, she goes into Ruthann's store one more time. Mm-hmm. And she tells Ed, like, hey, uh, I just cracked open a new roll. Let's pick up some snacks. It's going to be a great time. And then Ed informs her that she was a little bit off on the postage, so he actually never sent out the letters.
2: Yeah, she used postcard stamps, which uh – are perfectly fine to mail postcards but it's not the value is not enough to mail an envelope so he just never i don't even think it, it's not that he didn't mail them i think he brought them to the post office he says like you know they're pretty the post office is pretty um uh, stringent about that kind of thing or they're kind of like sticklers on that like they won't mail it unless it has the proper postage man could it have hurt ed to just buy a couple stamps i didn't even think about that but I don't know if he, if he's, if he's tracking down Angelo for 56 cents, I guess he doesn't have enough money to, uh, to buy a couple stamps for Shelly there. Um, but she's like, well, this doesn't make any sense because I don't know if she says it so explicitly, but obviously all the bad stuff was happening before, then the good things were happening, but it turns out the letters never got mailed. She says, what does it all mean, Ed? And, um... What is she she has like a a deeper conversation later with Walt. That's who it is, right? After this.
0: Yeah, she has this whole thing with Walt in the break where she relays her concerns with him and oh, says like,
2: "I'm sorry to cut you off. This is a scene that felt very I I think this is one scene where I will uh I'm totally with you here. I don't know if you uh, maybe we maybe we'll, maybe we'll have differing opinions, but this is the scene that I felt like was a little way Way too on the nose, or it just felt like no one ever talks like this, even in movies. Like this feels like a presentation or something. Mm-hmm. It felt. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, I won't drag. I won't drag on it too much, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, but this this did not feel. I love Waltz too, but this is a little forced. Very forced.
0: Yeah, and it's because it's a very clear cut solution of like Shelley presents a problem, Walt. Has doesn't even answer. give her a chance to speak. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he just he uh, he literally answers forth for what her problem is. Yeah. So let me set it up really quickly. Shelly is saying like, "Hey, what do we do if we don't have free will?" And Walt's <laughs> like, "No, no, no. Dusty's created within your own two hands. You need to seize it. You can't. You can't just let life happen before your very eyes. You have to seize it. You have to create mm-hmm. your own type of luck." And to emphasize the point, he goes, you know, look at my lucky little bottle cap right here. The it's like. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And that's what really matters at the end. And then they start name dropping a bunch of famous philosophers that have, you know, talked about preordained free will. It's conversations that can go in a circle mm-hmm. all day long. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Walt conveniently has the answer right then and there to serve the Shelley.
2: And there's nothing like... It doesn't go on a deeper level. Doesn't feel won like it's just given. Mm-hmm. It's just like she doesn't feel like she she won that that uh, that solution. And hey, I mean, like I actually really love everything. I loved hearing this quote, and I love everything that's Walt is saying. Uh, he has this quote: "Destiny is not a matter of chance; it's a matter of choice. It isn't something to be waited for; it's something to be achieved." He says, "William Jennings Bryan." Uh, is who that is attributed to. And I mean, these are great things to think about and to read. Uh, Like, I I wonder if it was just like, uh, the idea for this was like, oh, this is a great little quote. Like, can I put this into my episode? I mean, maybe not. Maybe that's not how this made it into the episode. Maybe they wanted to talk about ideas like this and they were trying to find Literary references to bolster their argument and things like that, but it really just feels like the yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how to explain. It's just like so in your face. It's just like a given. It's an answer to a prompt. It's not a a solution that was found through solving a problem or right. And
0: it's not done by it's not done by like character interaction. It's not done by anything of that nature. What this mostly feels like to me. It's like you have this problem and then you read something on the internet that is a very mm-hmm. fancy convenient quote or maybe you just watch a movie whatever and then you have this like epiphany where you're like oh that must be the thing that's prohibiting me from seeking happiness it's this one thing and now this quote film book whatever has now demonstrated that like as long as i can change that one thing my life will be happy. And that's like, it's such a clear cut solution. It's very simple. When almost always, 100% of the time, it's a myriad of things. There isn't like one simple fortune cookie thing that you can read and all of your problems get solved. And that's what's happening here is that Walt feeds Shelly this, I mean, it's a good quote and I stand (laughs) by the quote. Yeah. But it's a very simple lesson where he's like, nah, it's like you gotta try it with your own two hands. Don't just give up. Yeah. And then Shelly's like, oh, yeah, you're totally right. And then she goes out and does it and hopes for the best. (laughs) That's kind of what I'm gathering here. And I'm like, I'm I'm such a, I really don't like that line of thinking, both in media and in my own life. I, I don't think that's a very good way to live through things.
2: And it's like, I don't know, it's too. I I I can't speak, right? I don't know like why my words aren't working, but it's like it's just too much of an explanation, you know? It's just like too much just like written out for us here. Well, like I, I get what's happening though. Like I, I know what this screenwriter is trying to say. They're
0: trying to say that your future isn't carved in stone. So Shelly has these superstitions that are controlling it. But then when she sets herself free and she's not controlled by that in any manner, it's trying to seize the future with their own two hands. Uh, and at the end, we can talk about the end really quickly, is okay. that like she goes outside and she tells Holly, like, hey, we should still go to Fairbanks. And Holly's like, well, we don't have the reservation. She says, manifest destiny.
2: You got to <laughs> go uh, forth. She says manifold destiny. But yeah, you know, she's, she's oh, she, she shelly sizes it, you know, <laughs> she, she does her own thing. And, yeah.
0: Yeah. And she's making her own future despite what the chain letter is saying. Mm-hmm. And that's going along with all the other plot line or well, the other yeah. three plot lines. Mm-hmm. I get that. but like I,
2: I just don't see how she arrived there. Yeah, yeah, I like this for for an ending for Shelley. I agree. It's the scene before this that's just like, and you know, it's I don't know if I can even say. Uh, I, I want to say like, you know, there are scenes in Northern Exposure that are like that scene with Walt that are that do work. I mean, it's kind of close to working, but I don't even know if I could say that though because it does feel, yeah, it just it it, it feels like a lot a lot of uh explanation in words and uh, very little obviously no subtext there. It's just all on the note. I I feel, I feel like a broken record. I'm saying the same things again and again, but I mean it's hard to it's kind of hard to talk about too when you're just like this is why it's hard to explain what works and what doesn't, but something about it stuck out like a sore thumb, you know?
0: Yeah, I think the reason we're having such difficulty explaining our own thoughts into this is because it's so, it's, it's such a departure from ordinary northern exposure writing, I feel. It's like something's hmm. trying to mimic it. Hmm. It's like a pale imitation. I think that's why I'm harping on it super hard yeah. is because of that, because I can <laughs> I can see what they're trying to say. This isn't yeah. just gibberish.
2: Like, I I applaud their effort. You can see it there. You can see, like, the frame, and you can be like, okay, this kind of is... And if you're saying it feels like an imitation, you're like, okay, I see what it's trying to shape up to be, but it just doesn't feel genuine.
0: Right. The one that does feel genuine, though... Okay. ...is Maggie's plotline.
2: All right. The letter. You know, the titular plotline, as we said, the letter. This episode starts with an exterior shot of a house, and it's the same house... In Gross Point four eight two three zero, that episode in season four, I best say. episode, <laughs> Charles. You know,
0: just as like an aside, we had to like uh, there was like a uh, like a Discord server where we were talking about like best episodes, and the the medium that I was breakering in was animation at the t- at the time. But I wanted to like break ahead, and I almost wanted the dead drop name be like uh, best episodes, uh, Northern Exposure uh, season four, Gross Point. <laughs> so this is your, this is one.
2: your favorite episode, bar none. It's a good one. I honestly, yeah, I honestly think so. I think that's my favorite episode. I can't wait to rewatch it, yeah. I wonder, do we have the, I don't think we had the Blu-rays at the time. I'm gonna go watch it on Blu-ray. Yeah, it starts with this same house. We have this music, it's Dancing Queen by Abba. And there's a voiceover and a young Maggie O'Connell, a teenage, I I guess, Maggie O'Connell. Yeah, because I think she's 15 at the time. She's writing Mm -hmm. a letter to her thirty-year-old self, imagining her life as a lawyer with kids, living in a city, a husband with French champagne, and he doesn't have to be John Travolta or anything. But it's like a you know a perfect happy uh, future that she sees for herself. And she she puts this letter in an envelope. She I think she even does the wax thing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. She does the wax thing. And on the front of the envelope, it says to Maggie O'Connell, do not open until birthday 1991, which that was the episode, uh, is it called on the bumpy road to love? Uh, no, no, no. It's called Northwest passages. I'm confusing, um, season premieres, season three premiere Northwest passages. And that's when Maggie, I don't know if you remember Maggie has her, uh, her like birthday, uh, Oh, sorry, that's season four premiere. Bumpy Road to Love is season three premiere. Wow. Charles, I used to be good at like remembering the numbers of episodes and the names and like getting it it's correct. all bleeding we together. Ha- we have too many episodes now. Let's see this. I just want to look at it real fast. This is the 91st episode of Northern Exposure that we've watched. Anyway, um, do you remember Northwest Passages where she like wants to give herself a 30th birthday and she ends up like she is like very ill with some Life-threatening uh, problem and Joel has to go save her, like, at the river.
0: Yeah, I, I vaguely remember that one. But though, for some reason, that keeps making me think of that episode where we see Maggie's ex-boyfriends.
2: And like, Patrick Warburton's there. Yeah, that is the one because she starts hallucinating because she's sick. So before she, like, passes out or when she's passing out, she has these hallucinations of her uh, all of her exes and stuff. So yeah, that, that's the one. Anyway, so that was the day she was supposed to open this letter. I guess she doesn't get it until a few years after that because we're in 94 now. I think that's mm-hmm. canon with the show as well. Yeah. What do you think about this little this little intro? Have you ever done that? Uh, I remember when I was in elementary school, we did a time capsule. I don't remember what year it was supposed to be opened. I almost wonder if we opened a time capsule in like middle school, did you ever like get to open a time capsule or did you just put stuff in the time capsule? I can't remember what I put in my time capsule, but go, go ahead.
0: I remember making my own time capsule and I never found it again, but I know exactly what I did with it, which I guess is a time capsule in my head. So (laughs) it was a mint box. Like, you know, it, it was, it was a candy mint tin can was a rectangle, and out had a farm on the cover of it. And for some reason, I guess I thought rubber bands were to be valued or uh, <laughs> small miscellaneous things like that, because I, yeah. I remember distinctly putting in, like, three rubber bands as if that would be worth a fortune in the, in the future. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember distinctly writing a letter where I was like, nice. all right, well, if I measure time correctly in my head, in about... 10 years from now, or like 15 years, I can't remember the exact number, I'll be a junior in college. And I remember thinking that was such an incomprehensible thing to me. Mm -hmm. Still to this day, when I think of the words junior in college, I think of a wardrobe. I think of something that's inapproachable, something that's taller than me. Mm -hmm. Because it was so far away, and I thought that, like, that would mean I was an adult, a junior in college. I'm well past a junior in college (laughs) <laughs> and I think that, I, to me, a junior in college is a child, honestly. Like, I, I look right. at that, I'm like, that is a, this person doesn't know anything. Like, they might say they do, but like, no. Nah. And I, I I think about that a lot because I distinctly remember thinking, I'll be a junior in college. I'll be an adult yeah. and I'll figure things out. And it is
2: like so far from the truth. I still remember when I was like a kid and not even that young, but all like thinking about, my friends, older brothers and sisters, and they were like, what, 16 or 17 and being like, they're, they're full-fledged adults. Like, they're <laughs> so much larger than me. They're like, they, you know, they act differently. Like, I would treat them like adults or something. Well,
0: even even in my 20s, like my, my like uh, mid-20s to, to like early 20s, like 24 or something like that, mm-hmm. I thought people in their 30s had it figured out. I thought that they yeah. would be
2: really smart. Like, absolutely not. <laughs> like, and I, I, I've now, uh, I find that now I hang out with uh, uh, people who are older than me much more than I have before. Like, a lot of my bandmates mm-hmm. are older than me, some are much older than me. And so, yeah, I know. I think even still today, I feel like the youngest person. I feel like I'm younger than I actually am, you know? But, uh, but no, I also am with you, Charles, where I might view a junior in college as like a kid, you know, like they don't know anything. I don't know what they're talking yeah, about. It's weird. It's weird to put it. It's weird to put into words. I, I don't, we don't have
0: to talk about this very long. Cause it's like right, a whole right. entire, it's like a whole <laughs> entire conversation. But like, I acknowledge that like a junior in college knows things and they might be able to analyze oh, sure. media pretty decently and shoot, they might even be able to do it better than <laughs> me and you. But like,
2: say? you're like talking so low on it, like, this uh, hypothetical junior. Yeah, this
0: hypothetical junior. It's just like something happens when you get like a lot of exp- life experiences packed into you and it makes you uh, have a more tempered view of things. So,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, like, uh, right now I'm having to speak with like a lot of you know, like kids in college. I'm like, good
2: Lord. <laughs> like, come on guys. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Maybe we'll have some more chances to talk about this. Let's continue, uh, through this, uh, plot line. We already said talking about with Shelly's chain letter, Maggie receives her letter from Ruthann. Um, I think it turned out that her dad found it when he was throwing out some like old magazines or something. And so he mailed it to her. And that scene ends with Maggie biting her lip as she's reading the letter. And then I think the next scene is with her and Joel. Maggie is cleaning her gun, which uh, I think I don't think we've ever seen her clean clean a gun before. I remember there was like an episode where she's like she has like a vacuum cleaner. Do you remember this? And oh, it's the Might makes right. It's like oh the gosh, mites. yeah. And you were like, I thought that was a rifle because <laughs> it kind of looks like it. <laughs> she has like a rifle. On her couch or something. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I don't think we've ever seen her clean a gun. But um, we have seen her with a gun, I think, in that episode where they crash land the plane and she has to go hunting for them. Oh, you She right. hunts a squirrel. Yeah, she's got a gun on <laughs> that one. Um, so, so we know she uh, has a gun. She's cleaning it here and she's talking with Joel, talking over her childhood expectations, what she thought – Uh, she would be doing. We learn in this scene that Maggie took two semesters uh, studying law at the University of Michigan.
0: Yeah. um, Sorry to cut you off like that. I just wanted to say that like she's showing like exactly the type of thought, at least in my opinion, of what like a 30 year old might be able to see. Because she acknowledges in this very same scene, she's saying like, you know, I was in Gross Point, Michigan, and it's not exactly like the mecca for alternative lifestyle. That's why I had to rebel so much, and me rebelling was kind of going up against the expectations of others. Like she's internalized this notion within herself, and she's acknowledged it, and she knows like the mechanisms, the cogs in her life that are caused her to be this way in her thirty, and that takes some amount of living for you to realize this and put it into words and not be damaged by it i i think that like really flows very well Mm -hmm. with her age and i i i I have to applaud for that
2: yeah i love this for her i love this uh plot line and i love this scene um i also wrote down just a couple things about that were funny where she was talking about like you know my 15-year-old self, I thought I would like be a lawyer, and I'd have 2.3 children. I thought that was funny. That must be,
0: it's like the first trimester, right? Right. Yeah. So,
2: or, <laughs> Yeah, I guess, yeah, I'm guessing that's what she's talking about. Or like, what is it it's like there's a, st- a statistic that most families have like 2.3 children so, so it's like somewhere between 2 and 3 but closer to 2 or something you know mm-hmm. maybe um but and she i think she ends the scene or one of the last things she says in the scene was talking of her 15-year-old self she says she thought life was one long romance so i thought this Especially because there's that scene later when Joel returns the motorcycle. I thought this was going to be a um, a plot line that once again is like Maggie realizing or coming to realize in her way that uh, she wants to settle down with Joel. And I think that is also that is definitely a read into what is happening in this episode. And I think you could take that away mm-hmm. from this episode. But there is a very um, a very textual uh reality of uh, towards the end where maggie uh chooses like a, another like basically she wants to run for mayor spoiler alert we'll get there so that is kind of like where she arrives by the end of the episode but uh, you could also say that she's also thinking about joel throughout this as well perhaps mm-hmm.
0: yeah no no that's a really good read right there and then we get into the famous northern exposure thing where we get a very surreal concept and we we just really push forth with it yeah like uh hello i love you shelly meets three different versions of her daughter mm-hmm. great yeah. you know me and you we've sung the praises about it this one i thought it went pretty well mm-hmm. this is where maggie meets her 15 year old self that's inexplicably drawn into her life she's manifested as
2: this uh, surprisingly accurate yes yeah, pretty good uh child <laughs> yeah casting yeah for yeah she even maggie. got the same mole yeah, I wonder if that was, like, makeup or not. Yeah, I was Maybe. thinking about that. Uh, I think the voice is pretty good, too. I mean, obviously, it's not Maggie's voice, but, like, it's pretty, I don't know, something about it. There's there's a lot of checks, you know, yeah. check marks there.
0: Maggie wakes up in her house, and she sees this hallucination. And I like the line that she says. She says, self-introspection of this level is obsessive.
2: Yeah, yeah, she's like, I can't go this far. This is too much. Like she's, she's recognizing that this is something in her own self-reflection. This teenage version of herself in in her living room is going through all her old records, listening to Take a Chance by ABBA. So more ABBA music playing. And she's like, what'd you do with all the Doobie brothers? I just wanted to name check some of these artists. She says, uh, well, first she doesn't understand what a CD is, a compact disc. And she says, who are these people? Queen Latifah, Concrete Blonde, Yanni live at the Acropolis. <laughs> uh, I guess I had to say Yanni does sound a little tacky. Like I don't, I don't know if I would have a Yanni CD, but um, or like you know that's something we were like, okay, how did how did I end up with a Yanni CD? Why is this here? But uh, yeah, the scene continues where Maggie. Oh yeah, I remember that when she says this is uh, obsessive, a level of of obsession. She's saying this as she's like. Uh, moving away, trying to get away from teenage version of herself. And the camera is like moving with her. So it gives this big sense of motion trying to escape. And she kind of enters a new frame, which is, um, I guess you would call like more flat, where she goes towards the, she's like in her kitchen and she goes towards the left side, towards the fridge. And then from the right side of the frame, rushes in the teenage version of herself. So rushing into meter, we're in a static shot now, but it's like, they're both, uh, fighting for this frame here on left and right side. And uh, this is when the teenage version of herself is like I, like, I like this house that you have. It reminds me of the house on Lake Huron. She says, that was a summer house. This is where you live. She's like, you can't be doing this, Maggie. What's going on? <laughs> That's a great read. And yeah,
0: that is a very clever wording right there. What she says, like, she leads with the Lake Huron. And she says, you would think that, like, that's a compliment. But immediately (laughs) you can tell with the words, that's a summer house. Then she goes into the next sentence and is like, that is not a suitable place to live in. (laughs) And this is also where we see Chris. He's Mm -hmm. coming in. He's
2: delivering, um, I want to say it's like some form of pottery. It's a pottery wheel, yeah. He's trying to return it. I guess Maggie owns this pottery wheel that he was borrowing, but he decides that he's no good at – at sculpting or I guess he was explaining how he was trying to form a, a vase or a vase or whatever and it exploded um young Maggie is instantly attracted to Chris yeah I don't know what is the uh what is the significance of young Maggie being attracted to Chris is it to to show that like her young self was as she said she believed that life was one long romance and she's like attracted to this artistic man. Who is a uh, sort of a representation of a counterculture different than uh, Gross Point? That's all I could think. I don't know what's going on here.
0: Yeah, I makes think that's sense, like a I pretty guess. that makes sense. I think that's yeah. a really close read toward it. Um, it's exactly what you would be drawn to immediately if. You didn't have a lot of life experience, in my opinion. Yeah, I
2: think Chris is like that quintessential thing. And also, yeah, I mean, he also is just like the most handsome person on the show. Right. So,
0: <laughs> so you get like a conventionally attractive man. Oh, he's also very intellectual. Oh wow, he's also got a lot of interests, like pottery. It's it's hitting yeah. all of these uh, things right there on at a surface level. So why not just be really into him <laughs> when you're 15 years old? Whereas the conversation they just had beforehand, Maggie was trying to explain the flavor and depth that's contained within Mm Fleischman. And she says, like, I know that, like, we wouldn't have went for him when we were 15. But, you know, when you get older, it's not like your tastes have changed. It's just more that you you start to realize there's more dimensionality to other individuals Mm -hmm. right there.
2: Young Maggie can only see Chris. For, like, the surface or whatever that she sees now.
0: Right now, she's only seeing this. I mean, really, it's just a physical attractiveness. Yeah, right he's there. attractive.
2: I mean, he's wearing clay because he's got clay, all, like mud and clay all over him from trying. So, it's like on the surface, he is an artist. So, it's like, mm-hmm. okay, that's attractive too. Um, yeah, that's pretty cool. She later, Maggie, is like doing a tune-up or something on her plane out in the out in the airfield. And her teenage self reappears there. And uh, Maggie is, you know, trying hard to explain how empowering it feels to fly the plane and how that is an achievement for them, for like her, for us, for me or whatever. Like, this is an achievement that I'm flying my own plane. I've gone all these air miles. I thought it was interesting, you know, um, the the 15-year-old Maggie says... You know, I thought I, I thought I would have gotten over the this tomboy stuff and Maggie says I don't really see it as a masculine feminine issue. Um this is like work that I'm proud of. And um oh my god, I love when Ed comes into the scene and uh he can see Maggie's uh he calls it her manifestation. Well, she's like, "Do you wait? Do you see something?" cuz no one else um no one else around them has been able to see this teenage maggie because of course maggie even said to herself like this level of self-reflection is obsession like this is all something sick thing that's happening in my head but ed can see it and he describes it as a kind of a luminous egg i thought that's so cool so interesting
0: <laughs> yeah of course ed would be able to see this manifestation right there but of course you know i just picture just like a bright light yeah there's no way you can actually see what Maggie is seeing right there. Uh, that brings us to the next scene, which is at night at Maggie's place. And this is where they really have the crux of that argument where young Maggie is saying, I just thought you would have amounted to something more. And Maggie, of course, can counter back very easily saying like, you know, your expectations change whenever you grow older. And I'm not going to be weighed down what you think success is. Because success, to me, isn't billing somebody every five minutes or driving an E-Class Mercedes. And mm-hmm. I think that's pretty interesting wording right there when she says billing somebody every five minutes because yeah. that's suggesting that you're paying for somebody's time. Which, again, is something mm-hmm. that's very relevant yeah, in yeah. the theme. And, yeah, it's not like this 15-year-old's winning the argument at all. <laughs>
2: 30-year-old's got the upper hand. <laughs> <laughs> it's like easy like boxing match. Yeah, uh, Heavyweight, lightweight. Um, the way the scene starts is hilarious. I think it's actually it's a shot on the exterior of Maggie's house and we hear the dialogue overlaid. Um 15-year-old Maggie says, "You're reading a book?" Maggie says, "So what?" 15-year-old Maggie says, "It's Saturday night. You're going to tell me that has no significance in the 90s uh, reading reading a book on a Saturday night. I mean, it's Sicily. This is why this is why Maggie's here is because it's uh it's a slower pace maybe. I don't know. It's different than what you might expect in Gross Point or what you might imagine growing up in Gross Point, what you might imagine your life would be. She wants something different. Or maybe she's grown to appreciate the difference. I don't know.
0: Uh, We get, well, the scene ends with Mm -hmm. adult Maggie saying like, I don't want to talk to you anymore, which would lead to young Maggie having to run away. I wish, um,
2: yeah, sorry. I just wanted to say, I wish, uh, because it does end on that, but I think again, it ends on the, wide exterior of Maggie's house. Mm-hmm. So we don't actually see young Maggie run away or old Maggie run away from young Maggie. It's not clear. I wish we had like seen the fissure, of what happens here, but it's not too hard to follow because as you're, I think what you're getting into is like uh, young Maggie runs away and old Maggie finds her later or something.
0: Right. 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 Well, like, because they're one and the same individual, adult Maggie knows where 15-year-old Maggie is, which is doing a stakeout for Chris. Because when you're a 15-year-old girl, the most important thing is, of course, uh, boys. So she easily finds her behind the bush, and they have a short conversation, a back and forth, about now where the future is going to lie. She's already belittled her for how she's living in the present, but now she's saying, like, you know, your ambition's are like, they're so low. And adult Maggie saying like, no, I got some that were like, it would make yours pale in mm-hmm. comparison. Mm-hmm. And then young Maggie gets the uppercut and she says, you didn't accomplish any of those things either. Yeah. And that's what sends Maggie down this road of being like, okay, she's right. She's still, you know, she might be wrong on a bunch of other things of where I am now, but she is definitely right on where it's heading towards.
2: Yeah. I think what she comes out of from this, I don't know if this is a direct quote, but I think it is, I wrote this down. My job, flying, it's great, but it's not enough anymore. So she is proud of where she is now. She doesn't feel like she, you know, she deserves the criticism from her 15 year old self, but it is something that is healthy to talk about to think about is what is her future and where does she want to go next? And perhaps she's in like a period of stagnation here. And I wrote down that she wants a family because I remember them talking about a little bit about family. So I I do think that's something that uh, Maggie wants. Um, And I think you can take that away from this episode. But uh, I do also like that later in this episode, I guess, is it the next scene after she runs in with Joel and stuff? But is it the next scene where she announces her run for mayor?
0: Yeah, this is where she runs for the mayoral race because uh, we didn't talk about it, actually, but the mayor of Sicily, Edna, is in Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. I don't know why they call it that. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it, yeah. And evidently she hasn't been living up to her duties because certain roads haven't been paved. There are things that are going a little bit more whack.
2: Ultimate power corrupts ultimately. Oh no, sorry. Absolute <laughs> power corrupts absolutely. She, she. The only reason she became mayor was to get a stop sign. Was to fix these traffic inconveniences, and now she can't even like show up to fix a road that has that needs to be fixed. Like, will she listen? Oh my gosh. But yeah, Maggie is going to f- solve this problem herself. She's running for mayor. Uh, she's just got a uh, very chipper, very great. Mm -hmm. Attitude today. And um she is excited to announce this to Joel and she wants him to be her first signature. I think she only needs about 50 signatures. Right. Um, to to start like the candidacy, you know, to be on the ballot or whatever. Um, yeah, honestly, I'm gonna say this. I can't remember what happens with Maggie as mayor, like if she gets elected. I would imagine. It does happen. I'm having, a, I'm having a hard time remembering, but yeah, I mean, I would at least imagine there is an episode coming where she, where they have the vote. But I, I don't know. That's exciting. Is this an election? Is this an election year? Sorry to sorry to cut you off. 1994? In real life, or in like 1994? Um, the show ends no, in 95 or 96. Let's see. Well,
0: when you mean election year, do you mean election year for presidency or for, election for pres- year for the midterms?
2: Presidency.
0: It shouldn't be because 1992 should have been gotcha. when Clinton was sworn in. 1996, Bill Clinton gets reelected. Yep. 2000 is Bush.
2: All right. So, it, it, if anything, it would just be a midterm. But yeah, the show ends uh, July 26th, 1995. So, mm. um, sorry, you were saying something else too. And I, I think I. Oh, pushed.
0: no. I was just saying that, like, uh, Maggie at least has some ambitions in her mayoral run. She wants to. Add
2: bike pass. He wants to uh, improve the electrical grid. He has plans yeah. right here. I wonder if we're gonna get another like. Uh, I'm just. I'm remembering that plot line with Maurice and Maggie, where he's helping her build the plane, and they really butt heads. Mm-hmm. I wonder if Maurice is going to have any sway with Maggie in her mayoral campaign. I don't know if that's <laughs> even gonna happen. I can't remember that far, but. Um, The final scene we get with Maggie is her – this comes after Chris's monologue about the whole hero's journey and uh, nothing is exciting if you know what the outcome is going to be. Maggie is at home at her table writing a letter to herself uh, for age 45. And she starts off writing it like, um, you know, what can she expect, like uh, a husband or kids or something. I think she says something like that. But I wrote down – she's – Marks all of that out and starts over. I wrote down what she says at the end where she's writing, Dear Maggie, I'm not even going to guess about where you are, who you're with, what you're doing. In fact, I don't even want those answers. Uh, and the music playing here is uh, The Tide is High by Blondie, the Blondie version. And yeah, it's like an interesting bookend to the beginning. You know, Maggie at 15 and now Maggie at, I guess, 33, 34, 34 writing a letter to herself at 45 what do you think about what do you think about the ending there uh it, it does the job. there's really nothing wrong with it yeah i i've always wondered about this like how do you make writing cinematic i can't think of not that this is bad like this is a good it makes sense at the beginning but like yeah i don't i can't think of any movie that makes writing look cool you know it's always tricky when you have someone is...
0: The ending scene, season two of The West Wing called Somebody's Going to the Emergency Room. Somebody's going to the... um To jail? Yeah. And that one ends with Sam trying to write an email to his father. And I thought that one ended really well because it yeah. just ends with um he has to think about it. You got the music swelling up with the New York Minute. Everyone's <laughs> going out to the bar. Sam saying he's going to meet him up with later. And then he says... Hey Dad, it's me. And it cuts to credit, which is like a form of writing. I mean, he doesn't go through like the whole process, but
2: we understand that he's writing. I'm thinking of like when Ed is writing his script. Is like this is my movie, and then it's like that's the end of the episode. You know, like it just you just see the beginning of writing. Yeah, sort of this as well. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Before we uh, before we end talking about this plot line, I just wanted to uh, at some point mention because we're talking about like time capsule episodes. Do you remember that Cowboy Bebop episode with, uh, it's called Speak Like a Child with uh, Faye? Oh, great. So you don't, so there's an episode where um, I guess this probably may <laughs> have no interest to our listeners, so I could cut this out. <laughs> but there's an, uh, there's an episode where someone sends their spaceship a um, beta cassette tape or beta video cassette tape. And the whole episode, Spike and Jet, the dudes are trying to find a way to play this tape and they get like a VCR. But it's funny because beta cassettes like don't play on VCR. You need like a beta cassette player. So they end up going to like Earth, which is like a barren wasteland and they go somewhere in Japan, I guess, on Earth. They go to this like underground, underwater museum where they rescue an old beta cassette from like this technology museum, beta cassette player. And then at the end of the episode, they end up playing the tape and um, it's a video of Faye. You remember the character Faye Valentine, Mm -hmm. the lady on the ship. And it's a video of her as a little girl, you know, sort of making a time capsule to herself 10 years in the future, maybe. And it is just the most like heart ripping, beautiful and sad thing i've seen ending to an episode like this uh, like a time capsule type thing and i watched it you can watch it on youtube i think it's um like speak like a child please
0: tell me it's got to be i guess anytime you have to watch any of that stuff on youtube it's got to be split into like three parts (laughs) t40p (laughs) like that's the only the the way the lord intended for you to watch this
2: (laughs) i swear to god oh my god (laughs) That's the way, like, uh, what is the uh, Viacom or something intends us to watch this uh, No, uh, No, thankfully, it is, um, it is a pretty good... Uh, let me just look it up just so I can name check it. It's called Message to Myself-Speak hyphen Like a Child. And what's oh, crazy yeah. is it's three minutes. It's like the whole... It's like not even a short thing. They watched an entire, like, three-minute video. There's some cuts to reactions every once in a while. Uh, but it's really good, and... Uh, another thing that's really important to know is that Faye Valentine is uh, has amnesia. So she was like, basically, I think like frozen. What do you call that? Like hyper, cry, she was cryogenically frozen. Yes. And woken up like hundreds of years in the future. And so she's watching this and you can see like it gets close up to her face and her eyes and she's maybe tearing up. I can't remember, but she says, I can't remember this or I don't remember anything. And while like the- young version of herself is like doing like a cheer, like a cheerleader cheer for herself. Like I'm going to be your cheerleader, you know, you're going to do great in the future. And it's this innocent girl that she can remember nothing about.
0: Oh, wow. That is good. Good episode. I time capsules are such a good, useful device to use. Yeah. Like I, I, um, it, that just refreshed my memory. I, I, I I want to say it's my favorite episode of Parks and Recreation, Mm. which is the time capsule episode. And it's the one where the town of Pawnee has to decide what they want to put into the town's time capsule. So everyone could submit something that they think is of value to the town that represents them to some degree. Maybe it's like the menu from a famous restaurant that everyone likes going to. Something like that. And then this character, uh, played by Will Forte, shows up to Leslie Nope's office and is like, hey, I want to put Twilight into the capsule. She's like, what? He's like, yeah, Twilight. I think it's like really important in our time of living in this times." <laughs> and of course she's like, what? No, like absolutely no, I'm not going to do that. And then he he handcuffs himself to the radiator in her office so that like <laughs> she, he, she has to listen to him. And it's revealed halfway through the episode that – It's because he's an estranged father from his daughter who really loves Twilight. So his time in Pawnee is trying to connect with his teenage daughter. That's why he's trying so hard to be a good dad because he's reading Twilight. Mm -hmm. He wants to immortalize it into this time castle. And it's really sweet right there. And of course, like... It gets crazier and crazier because now, like, you know, once you allow him to put Twilight into there or the rest of the town upon, he's going to be like, well, I want to put like this type Space of thing J. into there. Yeah. It's like, all <laughs> yeah, this- <laughs> like ridiculous. And it just keeps going crazier and crazier and stuff like that. But I think that's like, that was so sweet. I remember watching that and being like, oh, wow, that's came out of left field and
2: it totally makes sense. Way to tug about my heartstrings. <laughs>
0: There's like moments
2: like I'm thinking I probably have talked about this on the podcast before, but because i was when we were earlier on in these seasons i was rewatching trailer park boys but there's moments in that dumb silly show that are also very touching and it's that always catches you by surprise when it's like a comedy show but it becomes like you didn't think it had that much heart and spirit and beauty in it you know it's like oh it's that's very touching but yeah sorry twilight i do think also that that is kind of a leg- legitimate looking back like that is a I feel like that did leave a mark on our culture, I don't know. Twilight? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's like I think it's good. I yeah. mean, like a lot of people like to use it for an easy punchline, but it could have been worse. Yeah, it's it definitely made its mark. Like it it I could see it being justified in a in a time capsule. <laughs> All right, Charles, now's the point in our podcast where we'll invite on a guest. And this season, we're inviting on fans of Northern Exposure to talk about season six and these episodes that we're covering. And for today's episode, we have a listener from, well, I guess we've interacted on Twitter at LServer362, or Lauren, if you'd like to say. Uh, Lauren has been following along with Northern Exposure. I think she just recently started watching it. Uh, We'll hear from her in just a second. But uh, she live tweets when she watches the show sometimes and uh, just, you know, generally sharing her thoughts on, uh, you know, sort of being a newcomer to Northern Exposure. Uh, But as far as I know, I think she's already started watching season six at the time of this recording. This was the first episode of season six that she watched. So without further ado, let's hear Lauren's thoughts on this episode.
1: Greetings to Charles and Lee on the Northern Overexposure podcast. This is Lauren um, at Lserver362 on Twitter where I typically live tweet my reactions to Northern Exposure episodes. Um, And I have been following the show for about a year now and I started at the beginning, um, but I haven't seen any of Season 6. So I'm a little bit of a fish out of water for Season 6, Episode 4, The Letter, which it's really bittersweet to be at Season 6, but overall I thought that this was a really, really good episode. It's got the classic pillars of Northern Exposure that we've come to expect and love, where the show is really unpredictable. It also has a great reflective philosophy, it's got a dreamlike situation, and it shows kind of the outside world coming into Sicily, which definitely operates on its own traditions, beliefs, and culture. I should mention that I worked in college at a library, and one of the librarians there suggested this show to me um, as a fan of Twin Peaks, and I don't know if she knew that I also loved My Big Fat Greek Wedding, uh, but I love that as well. And so last year when I was working at a public library, someone actually donated the first two seasons, um, so that's kind of how it came to be, so I'd been meaning to watch it for a while, um, and it's been really fun to follow along the podcast. So for this episode, I loved the the opening. Um, I was wondering if that was the same house that was used in Season 4, Episode 14, Gross Point 48230. Um, It definitely made me think of Laura Palmer's house from Twin Peaks. Um, The actress that they got for the young Maggie was fantastic. She was really believable. I kind of knew exactly right away who she was when I saw her. And I thought that it was really funny that Maggie wanted to be a law student, which made me think of Elaine, Joel's ex. And I wondered if that like made him intrigued at all. Maybe he has a type. I loved that this episode had a weird dream sequence where the characters go through a mystical situation. You know, most typically we see it as a dream sequence. This episode was a little bit different. Um, but I love that you really see Maggie's rebellious independent spirit, and that's you know, been with her throughout her whole life. She's definitely someone who grew on me, but I came to love her like maybe around season three. And I I love seeing her justify where she is in her life to her younger self and kind of face her life disappointments as maybe we all do at some point. And I love that we see a physical manifestation of that. And it's always good to see Ed's native intelligence shine in those situations where he can see things that no one else can. Um, I also love that Angelo says that he has resplendent hair because he totally does. I did think that this episode would pair really nicely with season four, episode one, Northwest Passages. Um, That's the one where Maggie turns 30. And I had showed that to my sister who turned 30 this past year. So that was really special. And that, that episode's close to my heart. I did get a kick out of young Maggie's reactions to Chris. Uh, I think they're spot on. You know, he's hot, kind of weird, but a fox, and he's righteous. She's right on all of those accounts. I found the Angelo plotline pretty odd. Um, He's very old school, traditional, kind of straight up, and he represents that outside world kind of coming into Sicily and influencing it, which happens a lot on the show, showing that contrast of like the town itself to the outside American life. It's also not the first time we've seen like someone with a different career visit or have a residency in the town. I think of the dentist and the blood mobile person. The convo that Angelo has with Chris is great where they were talking about how values are reflected by hairstyle and while I don't agree with it I love that Northern Exposure is the type of show that will have these conversations and I had written down a note that Angelo better not cut Chris's hair but I figured he did because Chris's hair kind of looked like a wig throughout this episode and the way that he wore that bandana seemed a little off or different where he usually has some hair over it so I wondered if that was going to happen. So not having seen any of season six yet, and I don't know if this is too much of a spoiler, but uh, I was really happy that Joel was still here. Granted, we're only four episodes in. I was also surprised at how excited I was to see him. I had told my boss that I watched Northern Exposure, and he said, oh, well, I stopped watching when Joel left, which... I I knew it was coming, um, but I still have no idea how or when, and I thought he'd leave last season, so I was really happy to see him. I showed my family the Thanksgiving episode this past year and it definitely has a similar theme to this one um, where a tragedy befalls Joel and he just doesn't handle it well. And the whole time I was wondering if it was a cancer diagnosis. Um, I think overall my feelings towards Joel have always been really rocky But this episode showed me that we wouldn't want to watch the show if things didn't work out for him. At the end of the day, he's still a sympathetic character, and you keep coming back to see what's going to happen to him next, Sicilian style. It was really funny when Joel calls Angelo a blabbermouth barber, which I definitely thought um, fills in that color of of Joel being kind of a meanie at points, Um, but that's how I know Joel to be. And I don't know if Joel ever really learns his lessons consciously, like he feels the shift in his thinking, but I think he internalizes the town over the series in a really nice way and things that used to bother him just don't anymore, although he still gets so, so moody which pairs really well with any time he's with Marilyn. And Marilyn made me laugh in this episode, as she usually does, um, especially with the scene of her not wanting to touch Joel's bump. Great scene. When he does go to the other doctor in Alaska, um, it made me think of his conversation with, I think Ed, but I can't really remember. Um, but he was talking about how, as he's grown up and is still a doctor, he's not the wonder kid anymore. Um, he kind of aged out of being like precocious for his age as a doctor. I can't remember which episode that is. Um, but age and growing up seem to be a theme in this episode for almost all of the characters, which is, you know, very, very Northern exposure. I have some little notes like hauling with the eggs at the brick that made me think of season three, episode 19, Wake Up Call, where they, where they have an excess of eggs. Um, and I also loved seeing that their bedroom is still pink, which brings me to Shelley, of course, wonderful, naive character, but always so fun. Um, her outfits and her earrings are always awesome to see. I loved when she said manifold destiny instead of manifest destiny. And I would like to pose that Shelley's green dice earrings at the end uh, signify that she's willing to accept fate and like take a chance by rolling the dice. I always try and pay attention to her earrings, and I love that Moose Chick kind of uh, annotates what earring she has in every episode. I think that the scene with her and Walt is also really great and noteworthy. And um, one of my favorite characters is Ruth Ann, and. That scene with Shelly kind of shows that Walt is a good partner for Ruthann. And I also love any scene where it's just Shelly and Ed. We have such a range of ages with this cast. So it's always great to see these two kind of kids um, interact on the show. They always seem to just like accept each other and learn from each other and support each other. I guess they just make really nice foils for each other on the show. And then I also thought it was super, super sweet when Ed called Chris his best friend. That made me so happy. Although I'm like, come on, guy, Ruth Ann is right there, and she's your bestie. Let's be honest. I really loved the little elements where it shows like the time frame of this show. Um, so Shelly receiving legit chain mail in a letter form, and then Young Maggie being confused over the CDs. Um, I just thought that was great, great '90s television moment. There was one mistake that I caught, um, and I'm wondering if you guys caught it as well. At the very end, when Maggie asks Joel for his signature on her petition for mayor, she says, you print your name here and write here, which I think is a mistake. I think she meant to say print here and sign here. But in any case, I'm really excited to see where this plot line goes, and I would totally keep watching this show if this was the only episode I had ever seen. It's really, really classic Northern Exposure. And the last thing I'll say is Team Mike. I love Mike Monroe. I'm in the un, unpopular camp, but uh, I love that character. But I loved this episode um, as well, even though Mike wasn't there. So thank you guys very, very much um, for all you've done, really, um, including the rest of Season 6. Bye. All right,
0: that was Lauren with the guest commentary and I like that she gave such a such a description for all of the past episodes. Mm-hmm. By my calculations, I think she referenced at least like four episodes from the past, like Ghost Point or Northwest Passage, all of uh, all of the ones from all the seasons that she's watching along the way.
2: Yeah, and actually uh, one of the first things she noticed in this episode is that opening shot. I think her question was, is that the same house from Gross 48230? And Charles, I was saying earlier in this episode, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the exact, um, it might be a new shot, but it was probably some leftover footage they had from shooting the exteriors back in that episode. It's, uh, if you go back to that episode, they have, I don't know if it's the exact same shot, but similar exterior shots of the house. And it's definitely the same house where, uh, young maggie at what 15 years old or something is writing this uh this letter
0: mm. i like how we can have this conversation of like <laughs> is that the same house or is that not the same house because we know that like in the amount of time that this episode aired when we're watching now it's about like 30 years give or take and 30 years later from right. here yeah we know that that's going to be like ah, oh, no they probably just like straight cgi dad <laughs> Like, they, like, created the entire thing,
2: like, from scratch. It's, it's like, on one of those, like, stages with all the TV walls and stuff. <laughs> like,
0: yeah, I was like, yeah, this thing was, like, recreated by, uh, like, chat GPT or something. <laughs> I <It> was like, <laughs> there's no way that we could be having this conversation to be in, like, is that, like,
2: leftover from the set? <laughs> I think so. I think they got that. <laughs> they retrieved it, yeah. Um. Uh, a lot of cool things that Lauren pointed out that I didn't even think of, like, Joel's ex-fiance Elaine was a law student, and in this episode, actually, I'm pretty sure we don't know this before that Maggie was going to study to be a lawyer. Like, I don't think that's ever mentioned before. It it might have been because there are some episodes about her parents and her past, but but yeah, that's a cool I, connection.
0: I think we knew something like. I don't know if we were told that it was specifically a lawyer, but mm-hmm. I think that we could gather from context clues that being an airplane mechanic was not her first right. choice. <laughs> I think there was something else. I, I, I'm pretty sure it was a line like that. Again, it's been like, I don't know, like over 100 episodes. I honestly cannot keep track. But I've always had that impression in my mind where like, I knew that like I don't believe this was like her very first choice when she was a little girl that she wanted to do this. Right,
2: right. And... I also have in the notes here, uh, just hearkening back to what you were saying, Charles, how Lauren is talking about all these multiple episodes from previous in the series. Uh, She brings up Northwest Passages, which I think she said she showed her family, her sister maybe, because it's like the 30th birthday episode. And um, yeah, this is a good one that kind of pairs with that. It's another uh, Maggie maybe looking back uh, instead of Northwest Passages is sort of like looking forward at what her life will be now at 30. This is what, like, forgot how old she is in this episode, but three or four years later looking back. Is that right? Like, what age is she in this episode? 31, Two, right? Or one or something. Yeah, because I, I do remember that this letter was supposed to reach her, I think, on her 30th birthday or something. Obviously, like, the letter came- A little bit later. Years later, because- uh, her father mailed, found it, and then mailed it um, mm-hmm. too late. But um, about that episode, Northwest Passages—that's also the episode um, that Lauren, you were you were referencing when Joel and Ed have a conversation, and Joel tells Ed about—I uh, think you said—aging out of his younger brilliance. Joel used to be like a wonderkind. Um, I actually have a soundbite, so I can play that, so you can hear the full. Um, portion of that episode in Northwest Passages.
0: But you know what the worst thing is? Well, I won't be a whiz kid anymore. Huh. You know I skipped two grades in high school? No, why?
1: Because I was precocious. Stell
0: Fleischman's brilliant little grandson. She got a lot of mileage out of that at the Jewish community center.
2: And I bought into it. Youngest in my debate club. Youngest intern in my surgery
1: rotation. But after 30, you're just, you're another guy on the roll, pulling. I mean, I still sew the same sutures. I still treat the same gout, but it's expected. I'm not adorable anymore. See? Well, you look okay to me,
2: Dr. Fleischman. Thanks. Thank you, Red. Forget it. Well, I didn't mean it like that. I mean, well, you're cute. Better than okay. I would call you handsome, but you're really not very tall. I love that last part. Ed's like, I could call you handsome, but you're not really that tall. So <laughs> but you're, you're fine. Uh, I remember that that moment or that sequence in that episode was so, I don't, like, you know, that didn't need to be in the episode. I, lo- I love that it was featured. I love that they like took the time and had like a little conversation that way. And just like the whole, that was a really stellar, that was a season premiere uh, season four, episode one, and it's like this is them pulling the canoe out of the back of the truck because they're going to try to go upriver to find Maggie because she's like fainting and she's like sick. Joel knows that something's wrong with her, um, but yeah, they have really interesting conversations it's just like driving, unloading the canoe,
0: yeah, prime dialogue right there. <laughs> I love it. Um, uh, Lauren also mentioned that. She got this one when her librarian suggested Mm -hmm. it because of her love for Twin Peaks. And she was already into My Big Fat Greek Wedding. So if I'm placing this correctly, it means she got into it around like
2: early 2000s, I would guess. I think she mentioned that this was like last year, maybe, or a couple of years. Ah, Crap, I just listened to (laughs) it. Sorry, Charles just did a legit spit take. with like. (laughs) No, let me listen back real fast. Okay. Um, Just to make sure. (laughs) Okay, so it was in college that um, she worked in a library and a librarian there recommended this show to her. So she actually hadn't really watched it, you know, until about a year ago is when she finally started watching it. But um, Mm. because someone at the library where she works now uh, donated (laughs) season one and two. So she's been knowing about it, I guess, for some time.
0: Yeah, okay. That makes more sense because I was going (laughs) to say, like, the timeline doesn't match up because, like, all right. You 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 profess that you like twin peaks, you like Big Fat Creek Wedding, you work in a library, so we're all like nineties, two thousand yeah. things. <laughs> Celebrities
2: don't exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, we'll see what Lauren has to say about that. But uh um but let's see. So I also really I, I so Charles, obviously we're recording this after we're recording this response to Lauren after our conversation that we had about the episode and I've been editing that conversation and um, I thought it was hilarious because uh, Lauren here talks about young Maggie's reaction to Chris and how like, of course, like, you know, uh, a young girl is like going to be attracted to Chris. She, she, Lists off all the factors that are um, so attractive about Chris, and in our discussion, Charles, I was like, Charles, what's the significance of Young Maggie's attraction to Chris? Like, what's going on there? <laughs> it's just like so obvious. It's like he's hot. That's what it is.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, can I be honest, man? I'm on. Yeah. <laughs> you're not, not attracted like, to cause Chris. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. This is this is for the show.
2: Okay hi i had to punch in for a spoiler warning here big spoilers ahead for season six of northern exposure if you haven't seen it and want to avoid spoilers skip ahead to two hours eight minutes and 28 seconds
0: okay so like i just stumbled into this train of thought because she brought up the fact that joel's leaving and i was thinking i was Mm -hmm. like are they are they gonna do a dirty on us (laughs) Are they are they gonna make Maggie fall in love with Chris at the end? Is this is this what they're trying to set up right here?
2: Charles, we can't, that I heard we can't uh we can't we can't talk about this any further. Wait, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> what that I, off my, that actually happens? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I don't know. Uh I don't know if I, how I can get into the specifics of it. But uh, uh okay. it may, there may be, I guess we can talk about it. There, there may be a uh a relationship between the two not going to say that chris like becomes like the new but i think that yeah okay we, we can say it that chris and, uh, and maggie uh maybe have a relationship at some point in season six
0: i don't i don't i don't <laughs> like this i don't, I don't <laughs> so yeah because I, I just got reminded of it and then she also brought it like like i'm not connecting the dots between <laughs> the two things and i was just like hey, why are they even setting this up in the first place like what, what is even happening here
2: yeah Um, perhaps that's what it is. I don't don't know that at the time of this episode, the writers were cognizant of that that's where they wanted to take it. I think that's just something that happens after Joel leaves. They start a new romantic storyline. And again, I've only seen this season once. I don't know for how many episodes that goes on. It does become something in some episode. And yeah, I mean, Charles, we knew this going in, but there's going to be things in this season that are going to upset us as fans of Northern Can't Expansion. Can't
0: believe I, I didn't think I'd get it right. <laughs> I didn't think I would get it right. But, uh, all right, them's the dice. Uh, speaking of dice, she talked about liking Shelly's green dice. Mm-hmm. She said that she thought it symbolized about uh, fate, rolling the dice, going along with that uh, manifold destiny right there. Yeah. And, yeah. Although I want to say, like, from my recollection, I want to say that uh, green symbolizes like, uh, the future, right. Or like something that's unattainable. I'm I'm trying to pull from great Gatsby.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. I think, I think the colors could have very many different interpretations. Um, green can also be something new and fresh. Um, green can also be a word that you use to describe someone who is, um, unskilled, inexperienced. Uh, green could also be envy and jealousy um, greed, perhaps. I think there's a lot of ways you can read into it. Yeah. But I, at least I think what, uh, Lauren's interpretation here, I think makes a lot of sense. Accepting fate, take a chance by rolling the dice. And, um, she points out how Moose Chick will often on her episode list, episode guide, uh, will usually notate what type of earrings Shelley is wearing in each episode. And it reminds me of like, um, in the West Wing, CJ's fishbowl on her desk it usually always has some sort of decor inside that fishbowl that is like visually related to something that's happening in the episode you know you know what I mean mm-hmm.
0: yeah she talked about something with the the print sign
2: how that might have been an error like oh yeah what do you do you okay so I thought about that as well and then listening to Lauren's commentary here it made it gave me this strange memory that I have of like my grandmother referring to cursive as writing and like not a sign. Like maybe this is a false memory that I've created in my head, but does that sound familiar to you, Charles? Like, have you ever heard someone, an old person, anyone refer to cursive or signature as just writing? Yes. Okay.
0: Because when I was learning cursive, I want to say it's like fourth grade, like fourth or fifth grade. Yeah. The only reason I even wrote cursive all the way up to college was because she said that that's how you write. Mm. Like that's like the proper form. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And like maybe she meant it like a different way. But when you're like eight years old or nine years old, when you hear those words, you think like, oh, okay. Then that's like actually how you write. Like print is for like Gibberty Doc. It's like (laughs) whatever. It's like you actually (laughs) use cursive to write. And it wasn't until like I got to college and then they were like, what? No, like, cursive is for like signing a check or something. You don't, you don't got to write in <laughs> cursive. Well, uh,
2: well, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just uh, thinking of like, um, letters from the past and like postcards. You know, everyone did right. write in cursive. That if, if you were taught I, it, that was like the proper. I word.
0: have like chicken scratch. <laughs> yeah. For curs- and it never got better. So, like, when I was writing in high
2: school, it was like, it was terrible. It's crazy to see like just anybody's, um, Cursive, you know, from the past is like so good. And it's like, I guess maybe because we weren't, it's not a skill that we were. I, I'm imagining, I mean, I could be wrong, but I feel like I'm imagining before our time, Charles, uh cursive was a much more trained skill. Like you had to really train on it. Or maybe people were just better back then. I don't know. <laughs> I don't <laughs> you know. know, I am
0: actually really curious on this on a tangentially related thing because we grew up learning how to write cursive mm-hmm. uh because people would still have to like manually write checks. There was no such thing as an electronic check. I don't know if they still teach cursive in school right now. Like for the kids that are growing up right now. Yeah. I actually don't know if they have them learn that in any way other than like a passing thought. Like maybe they spend like one or two days so they can do like a signature or something like that. So I wonder if they can read like the constitution in its entirety of <laughs> its like original thing. Like, can they understand like cursive and everything like that. And the reason I even say this all in the first place is because I recently read an article that said that Zoomers don't know how to use a computer properly. I don't mean Hmm. that they don't know how to like use social media or anything like that. I mean like opening folders, downloading from torrents, Mm -hmm. stuff like that, because everything is so optimized for them. Hmm. Whereas millennials grew up with the computers, but the computer was still kind of like in its Wild West days. Yeah. Like it was still being learned alongside the audience. So they had to learn how to be like, all right, well, like you drag it over to this folder and you save it to like this thing and then you can like encrypt it and stuff like that. I read that like Zoomers don't know anything about that. So that just brought me into the same train of thought to be like, I wonder if they even know cursive because that's just not a skill <laughs> they would need. Like you just wouldn't need that in today's time.
2: Yeah, I don't know you know, the truth behind any of that, but that is an interesting thing. Like if that is accurate, then Charles, we're in like sort of the like very privileged position of like, cause I remember when I was like young and in school, we learned, how to type on the computer and, you know, folder hierarchy and all the things you're talking about. And our parents are just like, won't even touch. I mean, my parents do know how to use computers, but at the time they were like, we won't even, I don't even know how, like, get that thing away from me. I don't even know how, like, I don't want to put my fingers on that. I don't know how it works, (laughs) you know? And we learned probably in class, but I think a lot just like intuitively of playing video games on a computer for so long, you know, that was like a toy. The computer was a toy to us that we figured it out. And I guess if this is true nowadays, it's more, it's not something that you're like having to figure out. It's more optimized for you. So you may not even really understand a whole lot about it.
0: Yeah. I'm sorry. I know I keep (laughs) regressing down to this point, but like, I, I finally know how old people feel when they (laughs) use computers now. Because when I look at like really new technology, let's say like Windows 11, for God's sake. When I'm looking at that, I'm of the cognizant thought that I know what I want out of this thing that I'm looking at, but I don't know how to get the results that I want, Yeah, which is frustrating. And that's exactly <laughs> how like the, the older people of our generation would right. look at it. Cause they can see the computer and they see us working with the computer and they're like, I know this thing can do Microsoft word. I know we can talk. <laughs> I just don't know how to access it. And it's the same way that I look at the new technology. I'm like, I know he can do this. I just don't have the means, but I have the brain power. I have like the cognizant thought to, yeah. to realize it has his potential. So I can get more frustrated than if I was like <laughs> seven years old and I didn't even know that he could do these things. Now I finally know how old people feel. That's frustrating. Like that is like an insanely, ah, I know why they're so angry.
2: Yeah you got to got to learn to dance with it i guess it's a, you know you have to submit to it again and be like i know nothing how does this work <laughs> and then, uh finally here with lauren's commentary team mike how are you has 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 your opinion changed charles what's your are you on team mike or uh, or get him out of here
0: uh i feel this this is universally true on anything that i watch uh, or read the the further away that I am from the subject matter from when I watch or read it, the more fond I am of it. I don't know why. Um, Maybe it's just by my very nature to like not want to dislike something. So the rough edges are smoothed out whenever I have a buffer of time. But now I look at Mike and I'm like, yeah, I think it's fun. Like I think it was a good addition.
2: Yeah, I think that's a healthy attitude. It's like, you know, remember the things you liked about it. I'm going to go on the record and say I'm I'm not necessarily Team Mike, but I think there are good Mike episodes. I think his character, I think I've said that this is just what I've said in the past, is uh, I feel like he's not used in the best. Like There's the idea of Mike that I really like, and then his implementation doesn't always deliver. Sometimes it does. Um, however, I will say I've become more and more fascinated with the actor. Uh, Anthony Edwards, I believe is his name. And, yeah, I mean, like, I think he was, like, on ER as well. He's in this movie that I've been meaning to watch since we were, you know, in season four, and I just haven't um, haven't gone and watched it. But it's this movie, Miracle Mile, from 1988, which seems really cool. I've heard great things. So one day I'll watch that, and I'll, I'll report back. But he's, like, the lead of that movie. mm-hmm. Well, that does it for Lauren's commentary. Thank you so much, Lauren, for watching this episode and providing your thoughts. Loved everything you had to say. And there's tons of things that we couldn't even, you know, didn't even think of. And uh, thanks for listening to the podcast and uh, tweeting online about Northern Exposure. Always good to have some uh, discussion about Northern Exposure online. Well, Charles, next week, we'll be back to talk season six, episode five, The Robe. So we got the letter. Next is The Robe. I'll see you then.
0: All right, I'll see you then.
2: Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork, and thanks to Lauren for being our guest. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.